This is Wahid Jensen, and you are listening to Away Beyond the Rainbow. and welcome to a brand new episode of Away Beyond the Rainbow, this podcast series dedicated to Muslims experiencing same-sex attractions who want to live a life true to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Islam. I'm your host Wahid Jensen and thank you so much for joining me in a brand new episode. Today's episode is the season two finale and it is a very special episode. It's with a guest speaker. My friend Amina is joining me today and I'm so excited to have her here and she's going to be sharing with us her story. As you guys remember, in the previous season, Brother Sinan um, shared with us his own story from devastation to tranquility and everything in between. And today, Amina is going to be sharing with us her story from same-sex relationships and marriage and being on quote-unquote spiritual life support, as she calls it, and living the quote-unquote progressive lifestyle to returning back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and changing her life for him. This is a long interview, but it is worth every moment of it. The way that Amina and I structured it is by going through her own childhood and upbringing, examining many realizations throughout, and then discussing her relationships and her previous lifestyle, as well as the major shift that happened when she chose to go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to call out to him and to steer her life in a different direction altogether. I would like to add a general trigger warning, and this is coming after finishing the editing of the entire episode episode, we will cover many deep emotional topics, including topics like abandonment and divorce, as well as issues related to childhood sexual abuse. So let's get started. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Amina. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Um, just just being slightly busy with work and such, but right. nothing too crazy. Cool. How about you? I'm doing well, alhamdulillah. I'm so excited to have you here, honestly. Um, it's nice to have you as a guest speaker, uh, willing to share with us your story and to actually be vulnerable with us. And uh, we actually have a lot of things to talk about today. I'm so, so excited. And I can't wait for the listeners to actually listen to um, this episode entirely. Um, we have lots of things to talk about. Anyway, uh, to begin with, let's start with a like a quick introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Amina, and I typically live in the United States, mm-hmm. but currently I'm just overseas for work, but I'm 31 years old. I, I'm Vietnamese-American, so my mom, she's from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. She immigrated during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and... My dad is, he was born in the United States, but he's so, his background is European white. Um, Mm -hmm. Religiously, my mom, she used to be Catholic, a very devout Catholic, actually. Mm -hmm. I think at one point she was in a monastery. Uh, She was not a monastery, living in a convent uh, to become a nun. And, And then my dad was very atheist. 
so uh, then my dad, he ended up converting to Islam when I was about five years old, I believe. Mm -hmm. And my mom, she actually said that she was going to read the Quran to kind of prove him wrong. And uh, she ended up reading the Quran and she ended up converting as well. SubhanAllah. So, yeah. And, um, but they did end up getting divorced, but no biggie, no biggie. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but so I kind of grew up in, in both kind of different religions because I kind of grew up in a little bit of Catholicism. And then mm-hmm. also since my dad was atheist, a little bit of that. And then mm-hmm. obviously now Islam. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So you have a lot of exposure to like different mindsets and different um, uh, viewpoints when it comes to like religion and things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's really subhanAllah. That's that's such a nice introduction. Um, so um, Amina and I have been talking and emailing each other for a few months now. Uh, I got to know you after you had reached out to me um, after listening to episode 10 of the previous season, which talks about female same-sex attractions, right? Um, and honestly, it's it was one of the most heartwarming emails I have ever received. I was personally going through a tough time during that period. And um, yeah, I just opened that email and lo and behold, I read I read an email from a complete stranger at the time. And it was so like, so, so moving. I really cannot like explain it. It was subhanAllah. Um, anyway, and, and then you ended up sharing your story with me and all of the transformations that you were going through and you are still going through. And I was like, oh my God, subhanAllah. <laughs> and then later on, I kind of asked you to come and join me uh, to share your story with us. And you agreed. So thank you for actually doing this, despite all of the difficulties that are involved. Um I know that you said you have many reasons why you want to do this um, podcast in particular. Um, so um, how about we start with this? Why would you like to share your story with the audience and whoever is listening to us right now? So I, I think because kind of how I've been on the Discord app and, and the Straight Struggle uh, forum, mm-hmm. I've kind of noticed that there's a lot. It's very male dominant. And mm-hmm. I think that's great. It's awesome. Um, but, uh, but I also realize that there's kind of maybe less females that are open about it. And then there's just less females in general that right. uh, Muslim females with SSA that are open about it. So I kind of mm-hmm. wanted to reach out to other females and then obviously males too, though, cause it's all just the same. I mean, we're all struggling with the same things. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but kind of to share my story with the other females and see what resonates with them. Because after I read that book by, Janelle Hallman about the the book that you were constantly referring to in episode 10, I believe it was mm-hmm. about female SSA. Right. I really, I just found that it was also similar. And so then after reading that, I realized, Oh man, like everybody else is probably just experiencing these same things, you know, and we probably don't even know it. Mm-hmm. So just kind of reaching out to that and then also sharing my experience because I, I, I haven't been this way living with SSA and, and not acting on it, mm-hmm. um, until very recently. So I actually lived as basically a bisexual woman for the last 13 years, mm-hmm. um, that was actively, you know, acting out on my desires and such still Muslim, but you know, I, I lived on that progressive, you know, quote unquote progressive Muslim, mm-hmm. uh, side of it. And so I wanted to share that experience with people because I want to tell people about that religious guilt 
that I have felt mm-hmm. for 13 years right. in hopes that, you know, if somebody is kind of on the fence or just whatever, like, you know, just hopefully maybe remembers the things that I experienced and realizes that it's not going to be worth it to um, go on that side or anything like that to engage in your desires. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's two of the things I would say probably as well, just for, for people that I want the Muslim community to kind of understand SSA more mm-hmm. just so that when, you know, their family members come out to them with SSA or uh, their friends or whoever coworkers, they don't shun them, you know, which mm-hmm. kind of, it seems like that typically happens. Right. And, uh, and I think it's just a lack of understanding. You know, I think that, I think that the Muslim community kind of regards SSA almost worse than sure, right? <laughs> like you, exactly. You, Unfortunately, you, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll you'll have. I mean, you'll have Muslims kind of like still having little figurines and idols in their household and such, and they won't think twice about that. But if their family member or friend has SSA, SSA that's it's automatically disgusting. Yeah, and so. Mm-hmm. Things just lack of understanding. And then lastly, I would probably say I just want people to know that they're not alone, right? Male or female doesn't really matter because I know what that feels like. Um, yeah, and to build a community around that so nobody has to feel like they're alone. That's, that's really heartwarming. God bless you. Thank you for doing this again. I really, really appreciate this. When, when you talked about the feeling of community, the lack of community, and the feeling of loneliness, I remember you mentioned this uh, to me a lot of times. Um, can you tell us more about that feeling of loneliness, even though you, you were surrounded by people, but you were feeling alone? And you could, I remember when we started talking, you felt that you never belonged to a community and you were trying to find that community and um, you were looking for it. So would you like to tell us more about this? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the loneliness factor, I kind of, sometimes I, my mom, she used to tell me that, <laughs> that as a kid, mm-hmm. she, I would just kind of disappear for hours and, and it'd be so quiet in the house. And she would think, you know, where'd this little girl go? Did she die or something? <laughs> so she would start, <laughs> she'd start looking for me. And she would find me in a closet. Uh, so, you know, uh, I didn't come out of the closet then, but so as a kid, I was, you know. No pun intended, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I would just be literally in a closet playing with a piece of string for hours. Like mm. I was just this withdrawn little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't really remember those times, but then, but then as I grew, grew up, I became more extroverted and, and started hanging out with more people, but I was okay with being alone as a kid, but then as an adult, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I just, I always felt alone, even though I was surrounded by people. So, I mean, throughout, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, I can remember, I just had, uh, really large groups of friends really. Mm. And I was always doing something. I was always outside. And, uh, when I was 18, I moved out of the house, moved out of my mom's house. Mm-hmm. I can't really describe the feeling. And I don't know if other people feel like this, but I would want to, it was like, I physically wanted to rip my skin off. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's anxiety or if it's loneliness or what, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it's connected. But mm-hmm. 
I would just want to rip my skin off and I'd want to just be in anybody else's skin. Like, that's what I felt like. If I could just rip my skin off, be in somebody else's body, I would be happy if I could be anybody else but me. Mm. But, you know, physically, obviously you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can say that, you know, I always put it that basically I've always had somebody to say goodnight to. Uh, I can only, I can probably count the handful of times that I've been actually quote unquote single Mm -hmm. or uh, just not with somebody. Mm -hmm. And I would just remember like waking up next to somebody and I would stare at the ceiling and they would still be asleep, uh, male or female. And I would just be looking at the ceiling thinking, man, I wish I could be happy. I wish I didn't feel so alone. And then that feeling would go away and I'd get up and I'd go on to my next adventure kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. And even, even now, you know, honestly, I still have never, I've never lived in a place by myself. I still like share a house with somebody or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I don't, I don't want anybody to, to, to feel like that. And if they're going through any type of loneliness in that way, just know that there's other people that are going through that too. Right. I feel like I've never really been part of the Muslim community just because it has been so judgmental and is so exclusive Mm -hmm. and uh and i know i'm just generalizing this i'm sure that there's there's some great muslim communities out there that are are very all-inclusive and such Uh, of course yeah growing up that wasn't the case for me Mm -hmm. and i i feel like that the the christian community actually has this down very well because for me i just like religious spaces in general for me, it didn't matter what religion you were, what religious space I was going into. I just liked it all. So I've been to plenty of temples. I've been to plenty of synagogues. I've been to plenty of churches. Um, I just like being around religion, right? Mm-hmm. People that are spiritual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I respect people that believe in what they believe. And it doesn't mean I have to agree with it. I just really respect people if they believe in something, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... When I would go to these churches, you know, with my friends or whatever, you know, they would just invite me or something. And I would go and I swear, like, <laughs> I would show up and people would know, notice that, you know, I'm, I'm new or, or, or they just don't recognize me. And they'd come up to me and they'd want to talk to me and they'd want to, you know, go out to lunch with me or they want to cook right. with me or they want to give me their firstborn child. Like, uh-huh. it's just so so inviting and um, right. and that has never been the experience for me when I walk into a mosque I could so I could go into a mosque every single day mm. and I could you know pray five times a day there and people wouldn't even notice me or they would give me bad looks probably because my jeans are too tight or my shirt's too tight or, or whatever it is or people would actually come up to me and criticize something about that you know mm-hmm. like oh you, know, you should really check your check your jeans or whatever god's not going to accept your prayers like that or or whatever it is the usual comments we're used to yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. and it's just like that community didn't work for me you know and so i think i think what's sad is that the well it's not sad but the progressive muslim community is actually building an all-inclusive community right now that everybody feels like they can belong. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I wish that our community could build, regardless of us or not, that we could build a community where everybody felt loved and like they belonged, they felt included. Right. Yeah. 
That's that's really beautiful, and I actually got to um, to talking about uh, you know your thoughts on the progressive movements and how you um, kind of disidentify with them nowadays and how you change your thoughts, but how they actually helped you and all of these questions. Um, we'll get to that inshallah towards the uh, second half of the episode. But now um, I remember when you and I started emailing each other and you had. Um, you you began discovering the genesis of your own SSA and putting two and two together, and then you started reading Janelle Holman's book, uh, The Heart of Female Same-Sex Attractions, right? And you said to me that it kind of described your life to the letter. Um, and um, yeah, so how would you kind of like to give us a summary of that? What are the things that kind of resonated with you from that book? We'll go into details, but like a general glimpse of how you felt reading that. Yeah, there was... So there was multiple things that came up in that book. I mean, it was like every few pages I was thinking, oh, my goodness, is this woman me? Like, what's going on here? Uh, You know, and that that was just I can't I can't say it enough. It was just so great. Just thinking, man, I'm not the only one. If she's writing an entire book about this and everything just matches and then most other females with SSA are have experiences or are going through this right now, you know, Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, the relation, I think a lot of the family relationships really stuck out to me. The the relationships with the mother and the father. Mm -hmm. Um, She Mm -hmm. talks about this idea of a defensive detachment, which I could talk about a little bit later. But basically, you're you're detaching from your mother. Mm -hmm. Um, How how you, how the female with SSA perceives their parents, um, whether there was a perceived abandonment or perceived neglect. Sometimes there's obviously real abandonment and real neglect, but sometimes it's just Mm -hmm. a perception too that can, um, you know, trigger or lead to SSA or whatever it is. Um, Mm -hmm. and then also just, there was, I think you also talked about it in the podcast, but the, I believe it was 12 characteristics of, of uh, female same-sex relationships right. and those were all to AT. Wow. Um, you know, just from the beginning of the relationship, how it can all just start from a glance and then mm. all the way through to that. It's typically a tragic ending and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. When I look back at my relationships, that's how they all were. Um, if I were to ask you, you know, as a female who has same-sex attractions, um, what kind of interests um, you had as a child growing up, you know, the kind of play you engaged in and all of this? Yeah, so as a child, I mean, anybody, my parents would confirm this, my friends would confirm it. So it's not even just me just trying to match myself with a book or anything like that or match myself with a certain profile. But um I was super tomboyish. I mean, that's what people would always call me. And, right. and people would always actually say that I fulfilled kind of that male quote unquote gender role more mm-hmm. than my brother. You know, I grew up with one brother and, uh, and they would actually always say that he was kind of the more female gender role because he was more sensitive and, you know, didn't like to play outside as much, blah, blah, blah. And, mm-hmm. and then there was me, you could, you couldn't even keep me inside if you wanted to, you know, okay. <laughs> my, mom had a, my mom had a rough time, uh, trying to just keep me inside. And I was always, I was outside, you know, playing, um, with water guns and water balloon flight, f- fights. And I was, you know, 
riding on the back of pegs on my friend's bikes. I was mm-hmm. climbing trees. I was, uh, I played pretty much every sport that you could have imagined. I was in soccer and basketball. I was in Boom Young Do, which is just a type of martial arts. I boxed for three years uh, from like nine until 12. And I was good at everything too. That, that was, that's actually also something that Janelle Hallman talked in her book is that she was saying that, you know, typically these women are really sporty and they're really good at it. (laughs) So that kind of, kind of, uh, affirms that for them to keep doing those things. And that's not like it's anything super wrong with athletics or anything like that, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's something that women, women at that age can get validated for. And, um, but yeah, you excel at those things and it's something that you are, um, yeah, like it's something to be honored about, right. And proud of. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And then even now, you know, my even now my job is actually pretty male dominated and all that and uh, there's actually not that many mm-hmm. women in my current job even, so it kind of kept going even all the way until I was 31, right? But uh mm-hmm. But yeah, so pretty much pretty much that's how I was as a kid. I remember even my my I wouldn't I went like wearing things that my brother didn't wear. So, so one time mm-hmm. my mom had to actually lie to me and she was trying to get me to wear a dress for something. And she had to tell me that my brother had worn it so that I would wear it. <laughs> so that you could, okay, oh yeah. So that you would wear that thing because you would never wore dresses before. Yeah. I didn't like dresses. And, and then there's, there's some pictures of me too. And, and you could tell that I was supposed to, I was supposed to wear a dress for some event or whatever. And so I'm in my dress and then I'm in like my tennis shoes and just, I'm just trying to boyish it up in any type of way I can possibly can, you know? And then I just got like this this frown on my face. I just really definitely didn't want to be there. And uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I wore all my brother's hands, hand me downs and all of that. And, um, yeah, speaking of sports too, I mean, even throughout high school, I played rugby in high school. I mean, that's pretty much, it's pretty much the toughest sport you can get, you know, almost like it's a team mm-hmm. sport. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I was always getting hurt too. I always had some random bruise. I, you know, I broke my arm. I dislocated my shoulder wrestling, just all kinds of stuff. Right. So, so yeah, that was kind of my, pretty hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was my childhood in a nutshell. And it's funny because my brother was the total opposite. My brother did not play sports. He loved computers. He was always inside playing computer mm. games. And every time I would try to get him to go outside with me, he'd say, no, 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 you go. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Wow. <laughs> I'm actually jealous of you because I've always wanted to be interested in sports as a kid, but I was never into that. <laughs> so that's quite interesting. Mashallah. Um Okay, so um, yeah, so that's as far as how you perceived yourself and your interests growing up, and um, yeah, and and so what about the family dynamics? So how would you describe your dynamics with your parents? So let us start, for example, with your own dad. Whatever you want to share with us, of course. Yeah, so my dad. So so my, like I said, my parents got divorced when I was about six years old. So then after that, I lived full time with my mom. And mm-hmm. I don't quite remember when my dad got remarried, but my dad did get remarried. Um, and that he's still married to her, alhamdulillah. Um, I think it's been mm-hmm. now maybe 25 years or so. But as a kid, 
especially especially after the divorce, just seeing my dad less, uh, I think that was very difficult. So this is kind of one of those things that it talks about in the book is that perceived abandonment and then also real abandonment, right? Right. And and you wanted him to be there, but he wasn't there. So he actually left. He moved out of the house, right? Yeah, yeah. Definitely we lived in separate households. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, so just saw each other less. But as a kid, I remember really looking up to my dad. You know, he was basically like he's just this manly man, just great. I mean, he was he was there all the time. Uh, before the divorce and and then after that he was just kind of absent obviously Hmm. so it was a little bit of a real uh, you know I I don't want to say abandonment like you know that my dad just up and left me because that's not that's not real either you know he did visit every now and then Mm -hmm. but there was a slight real realism to it there and then also just my perception of it was that in my mind it's like uh my little dramatic you know personality i'm like oh my god he just up and left me whatever um so that just has had an effect and and janelle hallman talks about this too that when when there is that perceived abandonment you start trying to look for that somewhere else Mm -hmm. and so i started trying to look for that in relationships i mean not really as a kid but you know growing up uh, as an adult Mm -hmm. but uh, no matter how rebellious i was with my father I always definitely looked up to him and I always loved him. And I also always knew that he loved me as well. Um, There were like, there were visits that he would come and, and I would just be crying so hard when he left. Um, So, so I know that the love was real, you know, it was just that we didn't see each other as often as I would have wanted. Mm -hmm. But you did have um, some good memories with him, right? As a kid. Yeah, there was one actually, so me and my dad actually recently just started talking again, actually mostly because of, mm-hmm. because of you, but we could talk about that later. But, um, but yeah, one, there, he actually reminded me of an event that we were paintballing and I totally forgot about this. He had come to visit and we were paintballing and it was my very first time paintballing. And, uh, I remember just feeling totally fearless, like, uh, it was mm-hmm. it was only me and him left on the team. Everybody else had been, you know, shot, and uh, it was capture the flag. And so me and him actually ran up. We both ran out of ammo, uh-huh. and somehow I don't. Neither one of us remember who actually got the flag. I think it was him. Okay. And he ran up and he got the flag, and we won the game. And it That's was just, so cool! Like a like an epic <laughs> yeah. father daughter moment, right? <laughs> Yeah, it was super cool because, like, the whole time we're doing these, you know, military tactics of just kind of covering each other while right. <laughs> while the other person is running up. And I don't remember exactly how old I was, but, you know, maybe it was, like, 10, 11. I would have to ask my dad and, and actually get the, the age right. But the age doesn't even really matter. It's just, it's just it was a good memory for, for mm. both me and him. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and then there was, like, the, the sad moments. You know, I remember one time. He also reminded me of this is one time I was leaving, I was, me and my brother, we were visiting him and then we were flying away from somewhere, wherever Mm. he was at the time, I can't remember. And uh, it was back in the day, I guess when, you know, they would let you come all the way onto the plane to say goodbye to your, (laughs) say goodbye to your kids, which they definitely don't do now. Of course Um, not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) leave them at the gate and let them fend for themselves. Uh But Right. But yeah, he, he came all the way onto the plane and he was saying goodbye to us. And I was just crying, crying, crying so hard. And then here, mm. my brother, 
you know, it's typically the more sensitive one and such. And he just, he looked at my dad and he said, Hey, and you know, dad, can you please leave? Because I can't stand to see my sister like this. Hmm. And uh, so then my dad left the plane. Yeah. yeah. So definitely love was there. <laughs> of course. Of course. But it was tough all in all, right? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think divorce is tough in general. You know, that's why I, I, I think as a kid and in my young adulthood, I think I, I held both of them accountable. You know, I held both my dad and my mom accountable for the divorce. And I didn't have mm-hmm. a way to vocalize that. And so I acted out. And, hmm. uh, but you know now it's and all, all of your emotions were kind of bottled up yeah definitely and and then obviously now as an adult when i look back i'm like you know that's it's not any, it's not anybody's fault you know divorce is divorce and that was also hard for them you know of course. It's, it's like they just had me and my brother to also deal with on top of that and uh hmm. yeah um, so speaking of this, as you're talking about your relationship with your dad and, um, yeah, this dynamic, I remember coming across the notion that a lot of females with SSA kind of, um, adopt a tomboyish attitude because, and correct me if I'm wrong, if this resonates with you or not, but I've heard it and I've read it actually that, um, because they kind of want to have the affection of the father and they didn't have that. So they kind of, adopt certain traits that the father identifies with namely the the masculinity or like the um, rough and tumble play or whatever it's called um, to kind of you know attract his attention or to feel his love because otherwise he wouldn't give me the attention that I need does the did this resonate with you growing up do you find this notion kind of okay that makes sense in my case yeah I definitely think so because my dad was also very alpha male he was just I mean, he's the manliest man you would ever meet back in the day. I mean, I think, I think when he accepted Islam, he actually tamed out a lot. Um, not that that's a bad thing or anything like that, but um, right. uh, he was. I mean, he would do the most extreme of things. You know, he was a, you, you know, skiing wasn't enough. Like doing black diamonds wasn't enough. He had to be the one that you would take up in a helicopter and drop off on the top of the mountain and you'd ski down. Uh, that's so cool honestly <laughs> yeah and he was an extreme windsurfer I mean I didn't even know windsurfing wow. was extreme you know but he made sure wow. it was and like and mm. then he uh you know he would he got his private pilot the pilot license so that he could fly planes and you know he would do all the things in the plane that you weren't supposed to do you know to make it extreme I mean he was just naturally good at sports and all daredevil that. in other words yeah. definitely definitely and then uh, when he accepted Islam, that's when I think he found peace in that because he was no longer chasing chasing uh, these adrenaline highs, right? These endorphins and such. Uh-huh. And so he right. found something else. And uh, so I think that's great. But obviously, as a kid, when I'm when I see my dad as just this alpha male, this manly man, and I want his mm. attention, I'm obviously going to do the things that to try and get that attention. So I'm going to play every single sport that there is so that. You know, he's proud when I when I win tournaments or when I win medals and, and blah, blah, blah. Right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I did. And that's what I did. You know, I would place like I would I would go to these tournaments for martial arts and such like that. And I would do really well. And uh, martial arts. but yeah, I, I, I probably didn't even need to do all that. You know, he probably would have just loved me anyway. But yeah, it's always this attention seeking. Um, mm. I, I find that 
that I was definitely, definitely an attention seeker as a kid. And it's weird to admit now, you know, as an adult, but I see it. I see right through it. Right. I remember you telling me a story about when you were 18 and you were driving back to the state where your dad was living with his wife, um, your stepmom. Um, so would you like to share with us that story? Yeah, that story was, so at, at 18 is one, so I had, I had crushes when I was, I mean, my first girl crush that I can remember when it was when I was 12 years old. And then, um, mm. I was, I had a boyfriend at 17. I had some boy crushes too, but very insignificant, could care less. Uh, so the majority was female crushes, right? Yeah. And I think those are the ones uh -huh. that resonated with me. I think the boy crushes were more for show, um, sort of, uh -huh. I don't know, just trying to fit in because that's what everybody right. else is doing. But, yep. um, but yeah, at 18, I, that's when I had my first girlfriend and, uh, my family found out and they found out because I was, I was actually supposed to, I wasn't living at my mom's house at that time, but I was, I had just dislocated my shoulder and broke a piece mm -hmm. of my collarbone or something like that. I was wrestling, whatever. And mm -hmm. I was supposed to drive cross country to go to Virginia, which is where, my dad was living at the time and mm -hmm. um it was kind of it was kind of this thing that you know he's he told me hey you know you can come get your your shoulder fixed over here and i know doctors and blah blah, blah and then you could stay here for six months and recover and so mm -hmm. it was one of those things where yeah it was it was for me to heal up but it was also for like hey let's make up for lost time you know you haven't lived here. Right, to bond together yeah, yeah. and so I was dating somebody at the time and I was on the West coast. I was in Seattle. And just to be clear, you, you never, you never actually came out to your parents or to any of your relatives at that point. No, not at that point. Um, okay. so I was dating this girl because I, I lived out of the house anyway, so they didn't have uh -huh. to know. <laughs> um, okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I was dating this 28 year old, actually. So I was 18, she was 28. And I told her, Hey, like, I'm going to go stay over here for six months. So why don't we just make this a road trip? Right. Mm -hmm. Take two weeks. We'll drive across. Definitely was not going to take her to Virginia. I wasn't that stupid. I wasn't going to take her, you know, straight up to my dad's house and be like, Hey, this is my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. But, um, Hey dad. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> Drop a bomb yeah. <laughs> right then and there. <laughs> like check her out. She has a mohawk, you know, she's like, tattoos on the face oh dear god <laughs> she literally was tattooed from head to toe like Whoa. this is my 28 year old girlfriend <laughs> hope you like her um <laughs> but no so, so we so the plan was is that from boston she was going to fly back to seattle so i didn't all mm -hmm. i did was i told my family i told my mom you know in seattle and i told my dad in virginia that hey i'm driving cross country to with my friends and um Mm -hmm. you know, so just so that they know that I wasn't alone and all that, whatever. But mm -hmm. I guess, you know, parents know, parents know what's up. And my mom knew for a long time, she knew that there was something odd about me. And uh, so then my mom had actually called my dad prior to me departing on the road trip. And uh, she vocalized him that, she she vocalized what she thought was happening that that I was dating this woman that I was going to go on the road trip with. Um, she didn't know for sure, but she did call him, and my dad had flown out 
a couple days before I was supposed to go on this road trip. And he tried to stop me. He showed up at my work and he never asked me if I was dating her or anything like that, but he just asked me to not go on this road trip. But me being me, me being 18 and already having this road trip planned, you know, I just told him that I would see him in Virginia in a couple of weeks that I was still going to go. And it's big because my mom and my dad didn't talk. After the divorce, my dad made it pretty clear that the talking was going to be very limited between the two. Um, it was only mm. going to be if something major came up with me or my brother. And so the fact that mm-hmm. the news had traveled. So I showed up in Virginia and I was obviously supposed to be there for six months. I have this car load full of stuff. And um, I, when I got there, right when I got there, my stepmom actually pulled me into the living room and my stepmom just flat out asked me, uh, she said, are you dating that girl that you drove with? Mm. And I wasn't going to lie. I didn't want to lie because mm-hmm. to me it wasn't that big of a deal. And um, I just said, yes, I am. And she said, that's the most disgusting thing ever. You cannot stay here. And Whoa. I didn't have a choice, you know? So I, so I just, I said, okay. Like I didn't want to be somewhere that I wasn't wanted anyway. Right. And um, during this time, I don't remember my dad ever asking me flat out, but he also, he also didn't, he didn't, um, how do you say it? Like he didn't, it's his house too. Basically he could have said something. He could have said, no, we're going to let her stay anyway. We're going to work through this, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't do anything. Mm. Um, so his inaction, mm-hmm. his inaction is really action for me enough. Right. And so I had to leave. Of course. So. You kind of felt betrayed and he didn't stick up for you. Right. Yeah, definitely. And that's tough as an 18 year old, I think. And, yeah. and, uh, But so my brother was actually, my brother had a good relationship with my dad, even after the divorce. He's always had a great relationship with him. He visits him way more often than I ever did. And uh, Hmm. my dad was, uh, not my dad, my brother was actually supposed to fly in that day. um, And he was going to stay with my dad for a couple weeks. And Hmm. so I told my dad, I said, hey, like, can we just wait until my brother gets here? And so I can tell him what's going on. And then I'll drive back. And my brother, he flew in and I told my brother what was going on. So then this is my the first time my brother is also hearing about it. My brother's a very devout Muslim as well. And he just said, he said, I'm going to drive back with you. And so I, uh, yeah, so, so sweet. yeah, so he canceled, you know, he basically, he was also supposed to stay there and he just, my brother is always really stuck by my side no matter what. And yeah, even if he doesn't agree with it. And so this is his first time hearing about it. And so, and I remember on the way back, you know, he was asking me about, you know, my girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. And I remember him just telling me, he said, you know, I don't agree with this. I just want to put that out there, but that doesn't change anything. You're still my sister. You're still family. We're still blood. And that kind of has lasted. Of course. Wow. 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 Sending him a big, big fat hug right now if he's listening to us. God bless you, bro. <laughs> right? Yeah, like through 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 thick and thin, really. I mean, even even when uh, we had, I had visited my my dad had had been living in Saudi Arabia for a little bit when I was I think it was I think maybe I was twelve years old, mm. and me and my brother had gone to visit my dad in Saudi Arabia, mm. and me and my stepmom we didn't get along, right? And uh, 
um, so my dad woke me up one day, woke me and my brother up one day and he said, Hey, you have to, you know, me, uh, that you have to leave, you know, directed at me. And he told my brother that my brother could stay. Uh, but that basically because me and my stepmom we weren't getting along that I would have to leave. And my brother said, you know, screw that. Mm. I'm going with her. Mm. <laughs> and so we ended up going back together. So yeah, even, even when, when I treated my brother so poorly, I, I kind of bullied him as a kid and such. He's all, he's never bullied me back and he's always actually done the very opposite and stuck by me. Um, so yeah. God bless him. He's an amazing yeah. brother. Mashallah. <laughs> May Allah protect him, <laughs> yeah. both of you and all of your family members. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. One, one more thing I'll say just about that 18 year old trip real quick to just yeah, sure. kind of go back to it. Cause I think it's slightly important is that I remember calling, there was only two, two lesbians that I, that I knew at that time. Mm. And, uh, I had known them for a very long time since I was probably like 12 years mm -hmm. old. So I called them from my dad's house when he, when they, you know, his family had told me that I can't stay there or whatever, and that I was going to be driving back. And I called one of them and she, I'll always remember this. She said, she said, don't worry. She said, but number one, don't kill yourself right. and just come home. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why would she say, you know, don't kill yourself? And I asked her about it when I got home and she said, you have no idea how many, how many kids kill themselves over stuff like this, right. you know, after, after parents reject them and blah, blah, blah. And thankfully that, you know, that, that idea didn't pop in my head because I didn't live with my dad, you know? Mm. So it was like, I think it maybe it would have been different if I, if I had lived with my dad and, and, and you know, it was like a very big wall that was put up, but this was mm. like, Hey, you know, I don't live with my dad anyway. So this is no skin off my back. I just go back home, go back to my regular life. Um, but yeah. yeah, but it was too much to bear anyway. Like it was really, yeah, it was harsh to say the least. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was, but you know, and, and I think I, well, I don't think, I know that I held that against my dad for a very, very long time, but as an adult, I really got it. You know, if you, if you believe in something so much and if you believe something is so wrong, mm. um, you you're going to want to protect yourself from it and you're going to want to protect what you, your kids from it. And he had, I think at that time he had two other kids, if not one, and it, I think it was the two daughters. He has three other kids now, mm. but it was two daughters. The two daughters came first and the, and I can't quite remember, but my stepmom had basically said something like, you know, I'm raising other girls here. So I don't want them to get influence. And, mm -hmm. and I, whether it's the right thing to do or not, but I get it. You know, if you're trying to keep your kids away from something that you think is a bad example, it's just, the problem is, is that I'm also, I'm also his daughter, you know, right. and that right. it's kind of the wrong way. I mean, I don't want to put right and wrong to it, but it's like, there's a better ways to handle it <laughs> because the problem ain't going away. Of course. You know? <laughs> like, Absolutely. Just because you, you send your daughter on packing back to the West coast doesn't mean that it, things are going to change. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, I'm sorry you went through that. Subhanallah. I can only imagine how, how that felt. Um, but yeah, alhamdulillah, like you said, like your relationship with him is much better now. And we'll get to that inshallah later in this episode. But that is as far as dad is concerned. How about mom? Would you like to tell us more about her? Yeah, so my mom, she, my mom's great. My mom is pretty much just like, a superwoman. I don't know if there's superheroes in this world. She's 
only one of them. She's probably Wonder Woman. I don't know. But, um, yeah, she's like, she's just an amazing human being. I mean, like I said, she immigrated during the Vietnam War. It's just this classic immigrant story, right? Where she gets on, hmm. you know, one of the last planes. Uh, she can't even, she doesn't have time to tell the rest of her family. It's just her and a close couple of the siblings that are able to get on this plane they mm. they come over they don't speak english they don't they're in their pajamas um mm. and then they just make this amazing amazing life mm-hmm. for themselves and for their families so and so um yeah and i remember that she was an anesthesiologist so you know not only did she become a doctor she became the best doctor right yeah <laughs> yeah and like and she actually quit anesthesia for a while when she was still married to my dad because she wanted to spend more time with me and my brother. Uh-huh. So she obviously loved us very, very much. Right. And um, she really she really looked out for us. I think with me, she had the hardest time because I was really rebellious against her. Hmm. And looking back on it, I really I don't know what would have been the quote unquote right way to kind of handle me because anything that she tried, it just didn't work. If she, if she just let me go do whatever I wanted to, then I was going to be gone. Like you would have never heard from me again. I wouldn't be alive today. Um, mm. if, if she, I remember she tried to ground me a couple times and I would just sneak out. Like there was, <laughs> so there was nothing, nothing she could really do to kind of mm. rein me in. So she just did her best. And, and I, I mean, I felt like I hated her. Uh, And I remember this feeling even when I was a kid. I remember telling my dad, actually. I remember telling him one time, I don't know why right now, but I just hate mom. I just can't Mm. describe it. And he said, you will never say that ever again. And uh, and then as a teenager, yeah, I just didn't want to talk to her. I just she would try to talk to me and I wouldn't talk to her. So it was just rough. It was really, really rough, but she, but she stuck by me, you know, even, even at 18, when I, when I came out or whatever, um, she still stuck by me. She didn't, she didn't necessarily, she didn't just flat out shun me like my dad and my dad's side of the family. She still Mm -hmm. talked to me. Um, and even when I left the country, she still talked to me. Um, so yeah, this kind of goes into that defensive detachment thing that Janelle Hallman talks about, but basically that I, I think that I blamed my mom a lot for the divorce and I blamed my mom for things that I, it's, I don't want to, I don't like saying it like this because it's not like this, but that for things that I feel like she let happen, mm-hmm. but, it, but it didn't actually happen like that. But the key is that it's the perception, right? So as a kid, if you perceive that your mom is letting these things happen to you and not doing anything about it, then that's going to resonate with you. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as an adult, I know that that's just not the case. Um, but yeah, so it was rough. But but now me and my mom, I mean, my mom's like my best friend. I mean, I text her every single day. I like send her things. I, right. you know, I just love her, love her to death. Um and, it, and that's great. Yeah. And it really started when I came back. I, when I went left for four years when I was 18 and then I came mm. back, uh, that's when I really got it. I really realized, you know what? My parents, they gave me life, which means that they gave me everything. And I don't, you know, they owe me nothing after that point, after they gave me my life, 
what more can they possibly give me? And I actually owe them everything. You know, they don't have to give me anything more. Right. So. Right. That's, that's so beautiful. Mashallah. That's really amazing. God bless you. Um, okay. And, and you said with regards to your bro that you used to bully him as a little kid, but he always, he, he was always supporting you whenever things got rough, right? Yeah. My brother was, oh man, it was so bad. I don't even, <laughs> like, I don't even know why it was, it's funny because it was this total, total opposite. So sometimes I would be I've always stuck up for my brother in the sense that if anybody was going to mess with my brother, oh, it was going to be on, you know, like nobody touches my brother. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, but then nobody touches, nobody messes with my brother except for me, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even as a kid, my parents would tell the story that, you know, I was like, I was in diapers, I think, and we were out at the beach and I think maybe I, I must have been three or something. And my brother's two years older than me and somebody came up and, they pushed him and, uh, and I just waddled up to him in my big bad diapers mm. and I said, don't touch my brother and, you know, pushed him back. And I was like, right. uh, but then, then I would just, I would bully my brother so much in the sense that I was, I would do this thing. It sounds weird, but I would do this thing where I bite people. Right. Mm. And I would grab my, I would grab my brother's arm and I would bite oh. it so hard. <laughs> <laughs> And he would just sit there. He wouldn't even do anything. Like he wouldn't. He wouldn't try to take his arm away. He wouldn't smack oh, me. He would just sit poor there. Poor boy. He's he just yeah. like, okay, I'll endure the pain till it's over. <laughs> yeah, and he would scream and he would cry, but he would never. He would never uh, lash out on me. And Aww. it's funny. Yeah, and it's funny now because I still do that with not with my brother's arm. That would be a little weird, but uh, <laughs> like I. <laughs> I bite things even now. It's like I'm trying to release tension. So I'll sit there and mm. I'll bite my pillow or I'll bite my blanket or whatever. And uh, mm. it reminds me of that when I would just bite the heck out of my brother's arm. And uh, and then as as a kid growing up, like me and my me and my friend, one of my, my best friend was a boy and he lived down the street. So we would just like, we'd make fun of him all the time. We would call him a nerd all the time because he was always playing his computer games and um, yeah, so we, we all really ganged up on him. But then I remember at one point he got jumped and I was just up and arms girl. I was like, <laughs> Oh heck no. Nobody jumps my brother, you know, except for me. Like, nobody's going to beat my brother up except for me. Kind of thing. Right. And, yeah. uh, and then I, but then at the time, you know, my mom, she moved us away from that neighborhood cause she realized, Oh, well, if my, if he's getting jumped a couple times, we should probably move. But, mm. but yeah, always, I mean, he's just, he's just a pure hearted, innocent boy. Like, I mean, now obviously he's a man and married and blah, blah, but he's just always, always stuck by me. I can't remember a single time that I felt like he just left my side, you know? Mm. And, uh, yeah. Uh, that, that's amazing. Shout out to your bro once more. Mashallah. <laughs> Okay, as we're going through the risk factors, uh, one thing that comes to mind is uh, any history of sexual harassment or abuse and that kind of trauma, uh, particularly involving the opposite sex. So um, would you like to share that with us, if you like? Yeah, so I won't 
get too into super details with abuse because I think it starts to become of more of a like, oh, poor me, victim me, blah, blah, blah. And I, I just don't feel like that about it. I think the stories surrounding it are actually what's more important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was sexually abused when I was five um, by a guy who was probably like, uh, I think he was a teenager, somewhere around 15, 16 years old. And um, so it went on for, for a while. And uh, what's important about this is that when, when we were found out is I think... I don't quite, the, the, the memory gets a little fuzzy, but I remember, I think it was my mom found us behind a couch or something Mm -hmm. and she brought me to my dad. And I remember my dad being very, very angry at me. And so that's really key because, um, it's perception, right? So if my dad Mm -hmm. is angry at me for being with a guy, no matter how young I am, I'm automatically going to start thinking, Oh, well, you know, if I want to please my parents, then don't be with men. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, he, so he got angry at me, but he also did get angry at him and he kicked him out and he did never come back. Um, but that was big for me. I think he had, he had spanked me. I remember being spanked mm-hmm. at that time. So it's like, mm-hmm. I'm being penalized for something that wasn't my fault. Um, mm-hmm. and then obviously everybody wants to please their parents. So, uh, so, and I, so I just kind of put two and two together, like, don't be with men if, you know, men are bad mm-hmm. and they get you in mm-hmm. trouble kind of thing. Yeah. And I was also sexually abused again when I was nine years old. Again, I won't go into the details, but this one was major for me and it, because it happened in a mosque. And so, Subhanallah. Wow. yeah. So after that, it was a mosque in Malaysia. I was living in Malaysia with my mom and my brother and my mom's second husband, who is a complete just we won't even get into him i mean he was full-blown full-blown abusive full-blown physically abusive everything so he doesn't even deserve to kind of be included but um his reaction is really important and so we were over there uh because my mom was married to him but so when the sexual abuse happened in a mosque i went home and um, my mom told this guy and told told her husband at the time and he told me, he said, well, that's what you get for being over there. Wow. And it doesn't even make sense to me now when I think about it, because what do you mean? It's a, like, what do you mean? I wasn't supposed to be over at the mosque. You know, I think that's the one place we're supposed to be, like, if I, right. Right. you know, normally. Yeah. And I was wow. actually just passing through there. I was trying to find my brother at the time. And um, I think I was on my way to Quran class or something like that. And, um, but mashallah, my brother... Uh, he's the one, so he's the one that was all up in arms about this. He's like, you know, he's like 11 years old and he's, he's non-combative and he's like, who is this guy? Would you recognize him if we see him? Um, let's go stand out there and we're going to wait for him and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I don't even know. I don't know if I'll recognize him or not, you know? Uh, and then nothing happened. We, we obviously, we didn't go and stake him out, but, um, but that, I think that's the important part dealing with abuse is that it doesn't even really remember, matter about the action that happens after. Your parents could go and kill, kill the rapist or kill the abuser. That part doesn't even necessarily matter. It's their reaction to it and um, mm. the emotions around it. And if they just kind of blow it off or if they take it out on you, then the child internalizes that. So for Absolutely. me, yeah. So for me, when my brother stood up for me like that, I'm like, 
oh, okay, yeah, it doesn't even matter if he goes out and finds them or not. He's just sticking up for me. He's At least he's not telling me that I deserve it and that, you know, that's what I get, you know, for being there. It doesn't make sense. But so I think because it happened in a mosque, I think that also put me off religion uh, for a very long time, um, mm-hmm. which I think is understandable. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, so... But I don't want to say that SSA is caused by child abuse because there's just way too many cases that it's not. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. for my situation, I just happen to have SSA and I happen to also have been abused before. um, And that those events could have possibly triggered me along with other things. I'm I'm sorry that you went through this, especially out of all places in a mosque in particular. That's just so heart-wrenching. Yeah. And I'm so sorry that you've been through this. And yeah, I can only imagine that. But um, alhamdulillah that you are over this. I hope, inshallah, and you're doing much better now. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it really, I really do believe in that, that saying that Allah tests the ones that he loves, you know, and Allah will never give you something that you're not able to deal with. Uh, I truly believe that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you were an adolescent and an adult, uh, when you became an adult and all of that, how how did you perceive members of the same and the opposite genders? And how were your relationships? How did all of that affect you? What would you like to share with us? Um, so with the opposite gender, I mean, so I, I, I think my first crush was somewhere on a male was around when I was 12 years old and I was in middle school. And mm. I think he was dating some other chick, but I remember it just didn't even really bother me. It was like, uh, whatever. <laughs> because I, like I said, I feel like I had these crushes almost as if because every other girl was having these crushes, mm. but it just didn't mean much to me. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas my first female crush was actually when I was 12 years old too. And that actually stuck out to me more. And I didn't know exactly what was happening, but mm. looking back on it now, I realized, yeah, that was definitely a crush. Like, you know, I would just the simplest things. Like I'd watch how she would eat. I remember her hair. I like know what she was wearing at all times, just stuff like that. You know, that Mm. it was pretty obvious what was going on. I'd always want to be around her and blah, blah. I would call this woman. I mean, she was older than me. She was like 21 at the time. I would call her like 10 times a day. Like there shouldn't be a 12 year old just calling you 10 times a day mm-hmm. um, as a 21 year old. But, but yeah, so the, the opposite gender, it didn't, it, there was nothing really meaningful about it to me. I feel even when I was 18, I, I well, actually when I was 17, I dated my first guy and, but it was for show. I mean, mm. I remember I would just always tell my friends when I was hanging out with him and it was just weird. And I think it's because I was really more attracted to women, but how do I say that when I'm 17, you know, mm. Mm. Uh, especially in a Muslim family and all that. Right. Um, and then when I was 18 and when I was, when I had come out, I dated a guy and a girl at the same time. And it was actually the guy that I dated was that first crush was when I was 12 years old. I dated him when I was 18 Mm. And I thought, you know, oh, this must be a fairy tale. Like he's come back into my life and blah, blah, blah. So it was more of like that. Like I, I wanted to be normal Mm. and, um, you know, I wanted to fit in with society and fit in with my family, but it didn't work because I wasn't that into him. You know, I was more into my girlfriend. Right. Uh, 
and then yeah, just kind of throughout life, I just I've just been with you know just a just a handful of guys, and and nothing nothing has been remarkable really. Um, and I you know there was a time I think that I hated guys, um, mm -hmm. that I was kind of just disgusted by guys, and mm -hmm. uh, but now now I'm not so much, and that 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 came about a few years ago, and it was. It was because I really tried to dive into why I am the way I am. And I was trying to do that self-work on myself. Mm -hmm. And so there was just kind of things in my childhood that made me think, oh, well, yeah, maybe that, maybe that was the reason why I kind of drifted away from men a little bit. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you said that the first female crush that you had when you were 12 ended up becoming your wife later on, right? <laughs> yeah, she did. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's funny because... Yeah, so first female crush, I mean, basically the the woman at the time, she was 21, I was 12. Obviously nothing happened then. She was actually my tutor at the time. So my mom asked her to help me to help tutor me in Spanish. Um hmm. and cuz I was in I was in AP Spanish and all this stuff. And basically my mom, she just wanted wanted me to have a, a mentor around. Mm -hmm. And because I was just hanging out with I mean the lowliest of the low people. I mean, I won't really dive too much into it because mm -hmm. you know but you can basically get the idea that i was the kid that other people's parents would tell their kids don't hang out with her mm. and uh, yeah so i was like always getting into trouble so my mom you know this tutor i really liked her mm. uh for reasons that my mom didn't know but <laughs> but so my mom just thinks oh she's just a great role model for amina and um you know, I, I want to keep her around. And, mm -hmm. and it was kind of her way that she, she would know what I'm doing because I love being around this woman and this woman and my mom would talk. And so at least she could have some sort of control over me. And I even, you know, this woman, she, she had a, uh, she ended up being with a, with a, with a woman, her own age, obviously. Um, and they went and they lived in this, this house and she even actually had a room just for me and I would go and I would stay there on the weekends. And honestly, I didn't even know that they were together. I still didn't know what like same sex relations were or anything like that. I mean, I was 12. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so pretty much from 12 until 15. And, um, and I remember her telling me one day, you know, I was over there for a weekend or something. And I remember them sitting me down and telling me, and this was my very first time ever even hearing that something like this exists. Mm -hmm. And they told me that they were together. And, and I remember asking like, what, you know, like roommates, like friends, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and they had to really break it down to me for, you know, bees and the birds and the bees style. And then I finally got it. And I remember just thinking, okay, no problem. You know, <laughs> just like Let's move along. Yeah. doesn't That's change fine. anything. Yeah. yeah. Who cares? Right. <laughs> Still coming over every weekend. <laughs> and, um, but they actually, um, that's, that's actually interesting. So they, they had a room there that you, um, used to sleep in during weekends and they used to take care of you and it was all like loving and caring. Nothing wrong was happening at all. Like it was, she was looking after you and she was your tutor and that's it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that's also kind of what makes it appealing is that, you know, and Jenna Hallman talks about this too. It's just this, that you're looking for somebody that loves you and cares for you. Who cares what the gender mm -hmm. is? And I think this is just universal. Everybody wants to be loved and cared right. for. It doesn't matter. 
And um, mm-hmm. so for me, this just happened to come from women. And then obviously, like at that age, 12 through 15, I'm going through already the divorce happened. So I've already lost my dad. And then I'm obviously already mad at my mom for whatever reasons. And so here's, here's people that love me and care for me, you know, and I'm going to latch mm-hmm. on to that mm-hmm. no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Perfectly understandable. Yeah. So you had a, you had someone who gave you affection, attention, approval, love, and they comforted you and she was your tutor as well. And yeah, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. makes perfect sense. Yeah. And then later on, I mean, that crush still stuck. And I remember even, you know, she actually, she had moved out of the country uh, probably when I was 15 or 16, mm-hmm. but I remember still communicating with her via Skype and such. And, and at 18 is when I remember, oh yeah, I definitely like, I, I really like this chick, you know, I'm, I definitely have a crush on her and blah, blah. And I would try to hit on her and she would shut me down, which is probably good. <laughs> you know, she was nine years older than me and she would shut me down, which is, you know, good. And, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, then at, I want to say it was, must've been, must've been like 2017, 20, yeah, 2017, maybe, mm-hmm. um, maybe 2016 is when we actually, developed a relationship together mm-hmm. uh, we were together for a year or uh, or a year and a half and then we got married and then we were married for a year and that ended so poorly uh i was the one that petitioned for the divorce and i got out and that finalized mm-hmm. um actually earlier this year so it completely finalized in january of 2020 and um but in in between that time in between 18 and then all the way up until I met her I mean I was with you know different women and just a handful of men and such Mm -hmm. so it was like it was like my one time of trying to settle down and actually doing this monogamous relationship and blah 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 but uh, thank god it didn't last thank a lot because uh, he's the one that unveiled my eyes you know and let me know that this wasn't this wasn't the right thing this isn't what I should be Mm -hmm. doing so Mm-hmm. All right. Alhamdulillah. Um, okay, yeah. so we'll talk about the, the marriage and the divorce in a little bit. But as you said, so between between the age of 18 until we actually got married, um, you had a handful of relationships. So if I were to ask you what, now looking back at all of these relationships, what were what were you looking for? What was young Amina looking for in these particular relationships? And how did these relationships make you feel? Um, what were the advantages and disadvantages, so to speak? Um, it's tough looking back now because I feel like it's hard to admit now as an adult, because I would really feel like I was just a horrible, horrible person in these relationships. I mean, cause I was just out, I was looking for me, I was looking out for me really. And, um, I mean, I would say, you know, on a deeper level, yeah, I was looking for definitely emotional connection and, you know, looking for these stable relationships, but I didn't necessarily care so much about the other person. And I was just, I was kind of, I was basically like, I was, you know, you, you sometimes hear about these, these guys that are just horrible to their girlfriends, not like abuse and stuff. Yeah. That stuff's really bad too. But I mean, just you know, they get bored and they just leave them mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And I was, yep. yeah. And I was just, I was the female version of that basically. And I, I did this, I had this really good way of 
basically making women feel like they were the only ones in my life. And they always knew that they weren't. I was never, I had never lied about it. I never, I never pretended I was just with one person, but I would make them feel so great for the day or for the Mm. month or whatever, um, Mm. whatever time we were together. And Mm -hmm. I would give them so much attention and they loved it. They dug it. I mean, of course, like I dig it too. You know what I mean? Someone's giving you (laughs) love and attention. You're going to, you're going to latch on. Mm -hmm. And so, but then as soon as I was bored, as soon as I was done and it could literally be in an instant, like I would, I could wake up, look at the person and just say, yep, I'm good. And I would just bounce and we'd just never talk again. Mm. And, uh, and I, and I think for the other person, that's really, really tough. Right. right. And, uh, so, and I, and I'm not saying that to like brag and like, you know, play off, like I'm some sort of player. I'm actually saying it like it's super shameful. And, um, Mm-hmm. I wish that I, I wish that I hadn't treated women like that, especially women, because it's like, man, women already get treated so harshly by men and women already get treated so harshly by society and by communities. Like mm-hmm. for another women to, woman to be doing these things, it's just, it's just shameful, you know, right. um, like we don't deserve that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But so I was looking for my sense of self too. I was looking for my, a sense of identity, uh, which it, the, Janelle Hallman also talks about in her book is you're trying to figure out who you are. Right. And so as an 18 year old, especially in that first relationship with that woman, um, you know, I'm, you're almost looking, you're looking for something in yourself and the other woman is also looking for something in herself. And that is typically why two women can, start a relationship off of a first glance, which is one of those characteristics it talks about in Janelle Hallman's book is that Mm. like two women look at each other and they're like, Oh my God, this is the woman of my dreams. Like I'm going to be with her for the rest of my life. And, uh, instant spark kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And you're mirroring each other. And Uh to this day, like I can remember meeting my first girlfriend. I can remember what she was wearing. I can remember the words she said to me. I can remember, you know, the way she looked, everything. And it's been 13 years, you know, and, um, and she remembers it too. You know, I've talked to her, you know, sparingly throughout the years and such, and she remembers it. And, uh, but yeah, and it's because it's because you're mirroring each other. It's because mm. you you have a loss of identity, and they also have a loss of identity, and they're and both of you are looking for yourself in each other, but but you're not going to find that because the only way right. you're going to find yourself is through yourself, right? I mean, obviously through God as well, but um, yeah. So you start these relationships, and it's already started off rocky because it's already started on some false pretense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no, it's not going to end well. It never ends well, you know, because it right. started off rocky. Right. So what what are the the advantages that you thought these relationships gave to you, specifically with women? Did they fill specific voids that you were looking for? Um, were they more understanding, let's say, than males? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the advantages of being with women is that they're the same gender as me, right? So they're just going to get a lot mm-hmm. of different things. Uh when I'm on my period, they're on their period and they get it, you know, right. <laughs> like when I want chocolate, they're right. like, yeah, I'll get you chocolate. I get that. You're going to need chocolate. Um, uh-huh. but so, but like on the, on the bigger scheme, obviously they get the emotional part too. Um, they understand when, when, 
when you're just feeling all crazy and whatever, because just about being a woman, you know, just, I mean, I, I, I hate blaming hormones on things, but sometimes it's just like, you're just feeling squirrely. I don't know. And they get it because they're also feeling squirrely. And then, mm-hmm. and you're like, women like to talk, right? Obviously. I mean, I'm talking mm-hmm. this podcast, but so, <laughs> and, and, and they just love to talk to each other. And that's, I think that's the big thing that women are really looking for is somebody to just talk things out with them. Mm-hmm. And so with these women, I was able to do that. I was able to just talk through my feelings about whatever, even when the feelings sucked because there was that religious guilt that I sort of hinted on in the very beginning mm-hmm. of the podcast. Even that, that has come up throughout the last 13 years. And it's always a constant thing. Not so much. I'm just my, my whatever relationships that last, you know, a few days, few weeks, whatever it is, but my longstanding ones, you know, I was with my first girlfriend for a year and then I was with, uh, another girl for like two and a half to three years. And then obviously I was married for a year, but we were together two and a half. So, you know, I had some, some decently, you know, semi longish relationships, um, for that age. And it always came up at some point I would just wake up and I would be like, I can't do this. There's something wrong with this. And I would, I would get that feeling of, I want to crawl out of my skin. I want to do anything else. I just be anyone else, just whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it makes total sense now because, I mean, I'm just living in sin, right? Literally, I'm just living in sin 24-7. And um, obviously, it's going to make me feel squirrely. But I would always be able to vocalize that even to the person that I'm with. Like, I remember telling my girlfriend um, when we had been together probably like two and a half years at that point, And I told her, like, I don't think we can be together because I don't think that my religion allows this. And I wasn't praying or anything like that something just resonated in me like mm-hmm. hey i don't i think this is wrong you know and it sucks for the other person to hear that because that is there's nothing that they can do about that they can't say oh well <laughs> like let's just do it anyway no your your partner is telling you that something about this feels really morally wrong to me and i can't mm-hmm. do it mm-hmm. but we were able to do that we we're able to talk about that you know and um yeah i just don't find that with guys because guys can typically just shut it down. They're like, Oh, well, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> there's not, there's not much thoughts to it. Or they say, Oh, well, I don't know what you should do about that. Maybe just go figure it out. Or, or, and I'm obviously generalizing. Not all guys are like that. Right. I'm totally generalizing, but you know, that's just been my experience. So definitely the emotional connection, I would say, mm-hmm. um, being able to talk feelings out, that's been super important. And I think that's what a lot of women strive for. Mm-hmm. So man, if you're, men out there if you're looking for women man just just talk just talk to them communicate communicate people yeah Yeah, that's all we care about like we just want to be heard we want to be understood just like you do and we want to talk things out don't just shut us down you know great advice point taken yeah (laughs) right I remember when you and I started talking and you were, as, as you mentioned, like the divorce was finalized earlier this year, right? And mm-hmm. you were only finally breathing in a few months after that divorce was finalized. Um, so would you like to share with us y- your story of your same-sex marriage, all the drama that was involved, how the divorce came about, 
And as you said at the beginning of this episode, you know, the the characteristics, uh, the 12 characteristics of female-female relationships, those actually um, resonated with you 100%. So would you like to guide us through that? So it's important to note that all of the 12 characteristics have matched all of my same-sex relationships. Mm. It's just easier to correlate them and match them with my most recent relationship, which just happened to be my marriage, because it is the most recent, the memories are fresh. You all probably can relate to it more just because it happened within the last three years. All of my other relationships were also able to match the characteristics. Mm -hmm. So the first characteristic in Janelle Hallman's book, it talks about the relationships can start from a first glance. And this is because you have two females that are looking for a sense of self, Mm -hmm. right? So one, one female is looking for something in themselves that they've lost. And then the other females looking for something in themselves that they have lost as well. And so when these two females see each other, uh, it's this instant connection and they're automatically going to bond over that. And they're looking for something in themselves in the other person. Mm -hmm. And that's why these relationships can start from a first glance. And in relation to my ex-wife, you know, I had a crush on her when I was 12 And so at that age, I'd already gone through my parents' divorce. I'd already gone through sexual abuse and just all different kinds of things. And so I had a loss of identity and I was looking for somebody that was like me um, to validate these uh, characteristics in myself that nobody else wanted to validate, you know. Mm -hmm. And so just the things about me that I was slightly rebellious or I was tomboyish, I was looking for those to be validated. And so then I found this woman who validated those for me because she was also very much like me. She was tomboyish and she was slightly rebellious. And so we connected over that. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 18, uh, you know, I saw her again over video and I knew that I had a crush on her um, just from seeing her over the video. And it's because we were still very much alike. We had so many similarities Uh, But there's still that loss of identity going on trying to find myself. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw her at 26 or 27, uh, she had picked me up from an airport. And I instantly, when I saw her, I knew that I wanted to be in a relationship with her. And we started a relationship within weeks. And uh, from that moment on, when the relationship started, everything started going very, very quickly, which is very typical of same-sex relationships, especially female same sex relationships. Mm-hmm. Second characteristic is it's the relationship is about connection. It's not just about sex. And I think mm-hmm. all relationships in the very beginning, you know, they tend to be more about sex and all that. And then later on it's about connection. But from the very beginning mm-hmm. with her, it was about both essentially. I mean, I was really into just talking to her. We would talk, mm-hmm. talk and talk and talk for hours and hours and hours we would constantly be, if we weren't on the phone with each other, we were, you know, together or whatever. It was, we would always be talking about our feelings and, um, and that was more important to me. And then Mm -hmm. the constant connection, that's the the third characteristic. So it kind of, kind of goes off of the, the second one, this constant connection, but it gets a little toxic in the sense that that's just not healthy. Right. Like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to be talking to them 24-7 and you shouldn't have to be with this person 24-7. But it almost, mm-hmm. it's typically, and I'm generalizing again, but you get a little insecure, right? So when you're a female with another female, jealousy starts to kick in and such like that. And you, 
feel like you need to be in constant connection with this person because mm. you're feeling a little insecure and they're also feeling a little insecure. And so you're trying to work out each other's insecurities together and you kind of start to lose yourself in that person a little bit because of the constant connection. Mm-hmm. So the constant connection can get a little toxic after a while because uh, when the two females are constantly wanting to text back and forth and she wanted me to text her all the time and to always be in, co- in connection with her mm-hmm. and to give her all of uh, all of my attention and anything that kind of took my attention away from her she kind of viewed that as a as a sense of that i was abandoning her and she had this fear of abandonment mm-hmm. but there's no amount of connection that i can do that will alleviate those worries. Hmm. So it was, it got kind of toxic, toxic after a while, just with the constant connection and constant emotional connection and having to be physically connected to when we were in the same place. Hmm. But you don't, I mean, there's no, you, you didn't feel that you were given space or you gave the other person space. And then it was turning into more of a codependent relationship, right? A hundred percent. Right. And uh, yeah, it's just, codependent af like you you start to feel like you really lose your identity which is i think that was the fourth characteristic but you really lose your identity in that person like you don't you feel like it sounds crazy but you feel like you don't know who you are without that person and and it's wild because we weren't Mm -hmm. even together that long when you think about it in the grand scheme of things we really weren't together that long and that feeling started even just months into the relationship um, you feel like you can't mm-hmm. live without that person, basically, um, and you don't know who you don't know who you are, and they don't know who they are. And uh, right. it's interesting because when I was getting a divorce, I was in therapy. I hadn't quite, you know, like really made the commitment to get divorced yet, but I was definitely going to therapy to try and work through the problems and, and you know figure out you know, basically how to make the marriage work is why I started going to therapy in the first place. Um, and the therapist just asked me, she said, Mm -hmm. what would make you happy? And when she asked me that I started going off on like, you know, talking about, Oh, well, what would make me happy is if she did this and if we were able to communicate and blah, blah, blah. And my therapist just stopped me and she said, no, no, no. What would make you happy? Separate yourself from this other woman. And what makes you happy nowadays? And I didn't even have an answer for her because I forgot what would what made mm. me happy. Just the smallest of things. I forgot what music I liked, you know, because even the simplest of things, because the music mm. that I liked is the music that she liked. The things that I like to do is the things that she likes to do. I like to eat what she likes to eat, you know. Okay. And uh, so it's like you lose your sense of self and this is what they call enmeshment, right? You get enmeshed in the other person hundred percent. Exactly. And it's, it's scary. It's scary once you're in it. Like when she asked me that question and it just took me aback and I said, holy crap, you know, as an, as independent Mm. as I think I am and, and all of this, I just, it blew my mind that, that I was so stuck. I, I didn't even I didn't even know what to do. And so then that's when she started talking about, you know, what do you, what are the things that you're going to do to take care of yourself and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and even those things, you know, she would ask me, you know, what are the things that you're going to do? What are the things that you like to do to take care of yourself? And I'm just like, I do not know (laughs) because what I do know is Mm. I like to go to movies with her and I like to eat dinner with her. And like, 
know, just, mm-hmm. uh, just lost so everything through the other person, right? Yeah. You lost your own identity, your yeah. own sense of self. Like you're not independent anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Subhanallah. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then after that, I think the, the next characteristic was it's the relationship is all about caretaking. And, mm-hmm. um, this was very true in the sense, I mean, one, I was completely financially supporting her a hundred percent, but even beyond that, even beyond financially supporting her because money isn't everything right. I was also, um, emotionally supporting her psychologically, everything. My wife at the time, she had ended up being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, Mm -hmm. which I mean, that is a total topic for another day we could do a whole freaking you know season on borderline personality disorder Mm -hmm. so i don't want to talk poorly about people with borderline personality disorder because i don't think it's 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 it can be viewed kind of negatively but it's not a negative disease or a negative disorder or anything like that i've talked to a lot of therapists that specialize in bpd and I've done a lot, of, a lot of my own research about it. And these people that have BPD can actually exhibit a lot of positive characteristics. They're, they're normally more able to emotionally connect with people. And then they just sometimes also have some negative characteristics. So I don't want people to think that I hate BPD or that I hate people with BPD. With BPD, basically, one person has to take care of the other. So not only was I in this same-sex dynamics of being a caretaker just because it's same-sex, but I was also in it because she had BPD, and I was always having to, like, basically do everything for her. It didn't matter. I mean, I was actually even out of the country at the time um, for work, and um, she wouldn't be able to do the simplest things, like to find another place to live, right? So, like, she had to move out of the place that she was living at that I was paying for. And Mm. she couldn't do that by herself. Like as I was in another country, I had to go on Craigslist and Zillow and all the stuff and find a place for her to rent. I had to set up the appointment with the landlord. I had to sign the leases, all the stuff. And I was out of the country and then. So added work for you, too much pressure. (laughs) Yeah. And things would pop up just natural stuff, right? Like, Oh, something breaks in in the house. And as I'm in another country, I have to contact the landlord to have them come fix it. And she just couldn't mm. do the most basic of things. And it was weird because she was nine years older than me, right? Like here I am just mm-hmm. kind of guiding a 39-year-old at the time um, through life. And um, But yeah, so as a caretaker, I was just pretty done with that aspect. Like that was too much. I was really over that. Um, not just, Mm. not just the financial part, but, um, just, yeah, just taking care of her in every single way. Um, yeah. And then another characteristic is the, the relationship becomes exclusive, right? You lose friends, you lose family. And this, this is when I really started to notice like, okay, this isn't right. And it was, um, I think it was, I actually have this all written down somewhere because I had to take notes, which by the way, if you ever start taking notes of all the bad things that are happening in your relationship and writing down the dates, um, that means the relationship is really bad and you need to get out because it's not normal. Uh, you shouldn't be happy to do that. And 
Uh, but I think it was March of 20, March of 2019. I think it was just last year. And uh, my wife at the time had called me and basically started going on this rant. And she told me that my, that my mom was bad, that my dad was bad, that my brother was bad and that, that they don't love me. Mm. And, um, and wouldn't, she didn't want me to hang up the phone until I would tell her, okay, fine. Like my parents are bad, you know, basically that I would agree with her and it didn't make any sense. It doesn't even make any sense when I say it now. Um, like why would you Hmm. want your partner to say such horrible things, you know? And I even was telling her that, like, why do you want me to admit to something that makes me feel so bad? You know why? Mm -hmm. And of course, looking back on it now, it's like, obviously, you know, this, you're trying to plant this seed. She's trying to plant this seed of like, Hey, your parents suck and don't talk to them kind of thing. You know, they don't love you Mm -hmm. and they're horrible people and they do these bad things. You know, they didn't love Mm -hmm. you back in the day, whatever, blah, blah. And uh, I'm the one here for you and I love you. So exactly. And, um, And it's funny because the next day after that incident, that's when I started going to therapy. And the, and it's funny because the next day when I started going, it was because she had convinced me the next day that something was wrong with me, that in that conversation hmm. that there was something wrong with me because my parents didn't love me. So there's something wrong with me. So I need to go to therapy. So what it wasn't even about like, you know, that she messed up and she said something bad. No, it was, there's still something wrong with me. And you know what? I totally agreed. I said, Hey, I agree. Like, I think everybody should go to therapy and there's always room for self-development. So I said, yeah, I'll go. And uh, I think a week later I started going. And in that very first session with my therapist, um, I went in totally saying, you know, Hey, like I really want to work out things with my wife. Um, I want to, um, work on myself. Here are the things that are wrong with me and blah, blah. And at the end of that two hours, my therapist just looked at me and she said, you're being emotionally abused. You're being psychologically abused. And sure, there mm-hmm. are probably things that you need to work on, but there's something else very, very wrong here and you're being controlled. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that answer, obviously, um, because I came in looking for reconciliation, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I ended up going to another therapist and I got told the exact same thing. And uh, that wasn't enough for me. So I went to another therapist who literally... Um, told me the exact same thing. And so finally I got it right. Three times a charm for me. You gotta, you gotta kind of like beat it into my brain for me to <laughs> actually get it. And these things are not easy. Like we all have to kind of like, you can't expect yourself to go from the first uh, session and just internalize all of these things that the, ther- the therapist is telling you, right? These things like take time and it's, it's really difficult to kind of face your own, um, issues and and arrive at new realizations without taking time to kind of internalize those and it's not easy on anyone like i can imagine subhanallah it must have been very difficult right yeah definitely i mean and this was i'm acting like this is so fast this was over the span of like it was between march 2019 and i think it was august 2019 where i spoke to three different therapists you know and i even had spoke to Mm -hmm. a psychiatrist that specialized in bpd like literally this woman's job Mm -hmm. is to um you know, help people with BPD actually be normal functioning human beings. And even she told me like, Hey, look, this is my entire job. I can't tell you, sit here and tell you that this woman will never get better, but I'm pretty much telling you that, you know, <laughs> like, like that, that she would have to work so, so hard to, um, you know, become a normal functioning human being. And 
do you want to be on that ride? Mm-hmm. If you want to be on that ride, then stay on the ride. And if you don't, then get out. You know, and yeah, it's, it's just mm-hmm. it's so so. Yeah, it didn't. It wasn't like one time I just heard it and I said, "All right, well, good to go." You know, uh, I'll just leave her tomorrow because mm-hmm. um, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Just like you said, and mm-hmm. um, and I think when you sign that piece of paper, it makes things so much harder for some reason. Um, like all my other relationships, I could walk out in a second. It was too easy. I just would just get up and walk away. But for some reason, that that piece of paper really does change everything. And and you're and you're thinking about it more too, because you're like, this is the person that I really signed up to stay with for the rest of my life. And then you feel like you're mm-hmm. letting the other person down. You feel like you're letting yourself down and you feel like you're failing, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that you're failing yourself and you're failing them. So there's a sense of failure with divorce. Right. But yeah, so that, that's really the, the caretaking aspect of it. I mean, another characteristic was the ambivalence part. Um, hmm. Oh, I didn't even, sorry, I had jumped around, but so the caretaking, but then the, the isolation from friends is what I was talking about, the isolation from family and how that all started. And it, it, it continued, right? So it was just little bits here and there of her, like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, my friend would come and visit and my best friend that I talked to all the time and she would come and visit and, and my wife would make sure to make it just the most horrible experience, right? So that my best friend would never want to come back. And, um, but then she would make sure to blame that on her or blame it on me or whatever. And then, um, she called my whole family terrorists. She called us all terrorists because we're Muslim. Um, like, sorry, buddy. Like, uh, you've known us since I was 12. Uh, we've been Muslim this entire time. Um, and so let's not play that game. All of a sudden, all of a sudden you just think we're terrorists. Let's not play. And, but it's just, it's just, it's the stuff to try and get me to like stop talking to them because it's a fear, right? That if I'm talking to my friends and I'm talking to my family, that other people will notice that there's something wrong with her and then they will influence me to leave her. Um, Mm -hmm. but that's not how, that's not how that works. Like if you just are normal and just let me talk to my family and friends, I don't actually start to notice things like, um, but once, Mm -hmm. once you start talking bad about my family, for my friends, that's when I get really defensive and that's when I start to notice things. And so that was kind mm-hmm. of kind of the demise for her. And so that was where I, I remember calling my mom because up until this point, I had done nothing but talk good um, about her to my family and my friends and such because I, I don't like bad-mouthing my partner. I really don't. I, I don't think it's like productive really, you know. And I remember calling my mom and telling her like, like help me through this because she just called all of you terrorists and I don't know why. Like she just, she just lashes out and she just goes on and on. She's like poking a bear, right? That she's just trying to get me to react and I don't react. That's the problem. I don't Mm. react. Right. So she just keeps going and going and going and pushing those buttons. And, you know, I was telling my mom, I just feel like I'm, I'm losing it. You know, I'm about to lose my mind. I don't don't know what to do. And, um, Mm-hmm. So my mom started pointing out things to me too, like you know, this sounds this sounds low key abusive, and it sounds you know very isolating. Like she's trying to get you to stop talking to us. And I'm not an idiot, Wahid. Like I want to tell you, like I in college, I I interned for against human trafficking. I wrote you know my thesis on pedophilia and child abuse. I worked in domestic mm-hmm. violence. Like I recognize these flags. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. you're in it, 
you just don't see it. And even if you see it, you don't want to believe it, you know, that these things are happening. Of course. So for anybody right. out there that's that's going through that, they start noticing things, man, just trust that instinct. Like, just trust it and just, it will be so much better when you get out of it because it won't end either. Mm. So yeah, it, d- it definitely got better when I got out. But yeah, that ambivalence toward each other. Um, you know, obviously just kind of from my stories, you can hear like definitely felt smothered by her. I mean, no matter what I was doing, um, these feelings of jealousy would arise. It's like those nitty gritty details of, of getting into <laughs> things that you would have never imagined, but just trying to find faults in you to kind of manipulate you emotionally. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it, it was everything. And so talk about walking on eggshells, man, you weren't walking on eggshells, you were tiptoeing on eggshells. Like you I literally had to watch everything I said, everything I did. And I was, and the crazy part is, is that I was out of the country for most of this. Like she was able to control me so much that I still had to think about all this. Even when I was out of the country, like she would make sure that if, if I had a weekend off or something that, um, you know, and I was going out with some friends or whatever, um, to do some sightseeing, you know, she would make sure to call me at the beginning of that and just say some outlandish crap that, would ruin the whole weekend, you know, and be, make sure to fight with me the entire weekend via text, via mm. calls and such. And, um, so she was very good. She knew what she was doing. She was, she, she definitely knew like her manipulation game was strong. Um, but yeah, so that feelings of, of jealousy and possessiveness, I understand that some of it's some of, you know, they talk about some healthy jealousy and all that. And, and yeah, like, if you're with somebody, you know, you're, you're not going to, you're going to feel some type of way if somebody is also pursuing your partner or something like that. But there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's levels of it, you know? And, um, yeah. And, and personally I wasn't doing anything. This was my one relationship that I told myself, I'm going to treat this woman the absolute best that I possibly can. And I'm going to be completely monogamous. And, uh, and I was, so there was literally nothing to worry about. And, um, it's funny because it's the one relationship where I feel like I've treated them, my partner, the best, and I got treated the absolute worst. So I feel like I paid up my karma with that one. But, um, oh. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then one of the characteristics, too, is that the relationship is dramatic, which, I mean, come on now. Right. Like, that's obvious. I mean, literally every day, girl, it was just a roller coaster. Every single day, it was like, are we going to go up today? Are we going to go down? Are we going to do both? Are we going to do both, you know, three times today? Which is so emotionally exhausting. Yeah, completely. Like I was completely drained. I mean, I was just like a shell of a human being. I mean, and then, and the divorce too, that wasn't no easy. It wasn't easy. That's for sure. It was like, she also wrote that one out. You know, she, she tried to, you know, it was like, she waited until the, I think you had 90 days to contest it. We had a prenuptial agreement, by the way, like it was the most fairest prenuptial agreement. It basically said, Hey, what's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. We don't split anything. She even contested that. I mean, she asked for spousal support for our one year of marriage. Uh, we don't have any kids together. We have no assets, nothing. And she contested it on the 89th day. Um, she had 90 days to contest it. She contested it on the 89th. Mm-hmm. I had to get a lawyer. I had to end yeah. up. I ended up just paying her off. I just paid her two thousand dollars to just leave me alone, basically, like so that I could go about my life because I was going overseas again. So I just wanted to leave, like so I 
it finally finalized um, mm. four days before I left overseas again. And uh, mm. yeah, but she made it dramatic all the way up until the last second. And uh, for anybody going through divorce, man, I feel you on that. Like that is not easy. And, and you're going to go back and forth so many times. You're going to think, Oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? And um, you're most likely doing the right thing. Unless that other person really, really wants to work hard to fix it with you uh Mm -hmm. yeah you're most likely doing the right thing you know um that's that's another characteristic by the way is that the relationship is resistant to breakups and so then of course you know she went through the whole thing and said oh no no i'm gonna change and blah blah no you're not doing anything whatever and uh (laughs) it was like it's so clockwork so from from april until like I want to say it was July or August. I can't remember which. Um, it was just back and forth. Like every week she would, you know, do something. And then the next day she'd say, oh, no, 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 please, please. I'll change. I'll change. And and then I'd buy it. Right. And um, mm. so that was it. So that was that was. So it took all that. It took it took months of, you know, her calling my family terrorists, her calling my brother a spy out of nowhere. Her. Oh, God. So, yeah, it was months mm-hmm. and months. Um, so very, very resistant to breakups. And then I think the last characteristic is, well, or second to last, I think it's a, it's a, it's a tragic ending, which I've kind of already hit on. Right. I mean, girl, mm. like, oh man, <laughs> if, if you could see me then, oh. like just, just the, the, man, my, my friends and my family, they all deserve just cash rewards for putting up with me. Mm-hmm. The last characteristic, the 12th characteristic, is that it's an endless cycle. So you can either end up being with the same person again um, because you're so you're so down and depressed and blah, 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 or you just start the same cycle with somebody else, mm-hmm. and um, which is what I used to do. And so this is the very first time that I'm... You know, like I said, the divorce just finalized was six, six months ago, seven months ago. Mm-hmm. And um, typically I would be in another relationship right now because you're you're so depressed. You're so anxious about being alone and you find another woman to um, understand that with you, mm-hmm. you know. And so, since women are so understanding of each other, they kind of like feed off of that as well. So you're kind of like this, Oh, this poor me victim. And you go out into the dating world again and some woman finds you and they're like, Oh, let me help you through this breakup, you know? <laughs> and, then, uh, mm-hmm. and you're like, heck yeah, let's do this, you know, help me. And it just starts that cycle all over again. And then you just, you just go through those 12 characteristics all over again. I mean, right before I was with my wife, you know, a woman had just proposed to me, I think like, I don't know, maybe two weeks prior. Mm. It's something so, so short. And I broke up with her. I like left her at the proposal and, um, started another relationship and got married, you know? Uh. <laughs> uh, so yeah, kind of this endless cycle, one breakup after another. That was a lot. Yeah, that was, that was something. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's shift gears now and talk about 
uplifting things because subhanallah this has been really really like an emotional roller coaster we've you, you've taken us into your world and subhanallah it's been i can only imagine what you've been through um but i'm really happy that you are over a lot of those issues and speaking of that can we talk a little bit about um spirituality and religion and your perception of god um, and how did that change throughout the years until this particular moment? Yeah, so I basically, um, so now, right now I'm good. I mean, obviously I have ups and downs just like mm-hmm. everybody else, but I don't feel the type of anxiety and feel like that type of depression that I used to feel. Um, and I'm not even saying mm-hmm. that, oh, maybe it's just because I'm not with women any- and women anymore. No, I think it's, 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 you know, a multitude of things. Um, it's hard to attribute just one thing to why I feel really good now, but, um, right. religiously, uh, it's like, it's hard to even say where my religion was at as a kid and as a young adult, because I don't think it was there. I mean, I was practically on life support. Like you could just pull that plug and just put me out of my misery. Like that's where my religion was, you know, spiritually, I was just dying. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, it's like, I didn't pray. I just started praying five times a day this year. And um, I fast, yeah, I fasted for most Ramadans. Um, I was just kind of put off by religion. I was put off by religion at a young age. And then as I got got older, I got put off of it. Um, with some other ways. I mean, mostly relating to my SSA. Mm-hmm. Throughout my 13 years that I lived as a progressive Muslim, I, I went to a lot of different gay pride parades. I mean, I was pretty much in a gay pride parade every single year. And um, I said a lot of the things that we read about um, that progressive Muslims would say, such as, you know, love is love. You can love whoever you want. I mean, really just the LGBTQIA plus community in general, Muslim, Muslim or not. Mm-hmm. And I was actually say those things as well. And, um, I would always say, you know, you, it, you can love whoever you want as long as you're not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. But what I had forgot is that, you know, I'm a person too. And I was ending up hurting myself with that religious guilt and I was hurting myself spiritually and just emotionally in every single way. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you know, I wouldn't stand for other people being hurt in this way. So I didn't understand why I didn't value myself that much that I was allowing myself to be hurt when I wouldn't let anybody else be hurt like that. Mm -hmm. And so I also, I was always asked and normally people in the progressive Muslim community are asked this too, whether or not they're religious and typically the answer that I've seen a lot. And I've also given myself was that I'm more spiritual than I am religious. And I realized after a while that that was kind of just a cop out because I think that I was always saying that, you know, you just have to be a good person and that's, that's what's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. But I realized that being a good person really is just a baseline. We should be so much more than just good people and it was just kind of a cop-out answer so that I could keep on living the way that I was living. Mm-hmm. But I always, I never doubted that I was Muslim. I never lost that foundation. I never, mm-hmm. I never felt like any other religion. Mm-hmm. And so it's always given me something to come back to. And um, I think mm-hmm. like, 
I think maybe I've prayed the actual, you know, Islamic prayer maybe five times since I was 18 until now. Um, but it doesn't mean that I wasn't praying to God, you know, I would always reach out to him, especially when I was going through these really tough times. Like I remember when I was going through my divorce and such, I was like praying to Allah. I just kept saying, you know, like, please, please, if this is right for me, if this is right for me, just let this happen and make me okay with it. Because don't let me go back to this woman if this is not supposed to be the right path for me. Mm -hmm. And then here I am, you know, um, and I would say, like, when my divorce actually finalized, that day was glorious. Uh, I just, I felt great. I felt good. And then, you know, there's been maybe a couple times over the last seven months that I think, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I miss her or whatever like that. But, it, but it's not like, oh, I miss her and I want to go back to her. No, it's just you were deeply connected with somebody. I've been deeply connected with her since I was 12. Mm -hmm. And so that feeling just doesn't just disappear. Right. Mm. Um, but when I started praying again this year, that is one prayer that I make every single, every single time. As I say, one, please lessen, lessen the attraction to women for me. If it's something that is not pleasing to you and please make me okay with, these decisions that I've made to leave this lifestyle behind, please make it okay for me. And I have found that the attraction has lessened, Mm -hmm. um, which is pretty miraculous in my position because, um, I find I definitely, you know, I think that I'm definitely just way more attracted to women than I am men. Uh, but now it feels slightly like the tables are turning a little bit and that, I have nobody else to thank except for a law. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter the books or anything. Of course. Um, Absolutely. I feel good spiritually now, probably the best that I've ever felt. Um, Alhamdulillah. That's, that's really great yeah. to hear. May Allah continue to increase you and bless you. Alhamdulillah. That's wonderful. Um, so speaking of that, um, like if you, if we were talking about the grand scheme of things, what is your life's purpose? What is Amina's vision? Where is she now? Where does she want to be? I mean, our, it's interesting you ask that because I, I made this prayer. I think it was, mm, I think it was about a month ago, and I was really, I was making dua, and and for some reason the the year the number nineteen popped up, and I was like crying and all that dramatic stuff, and I was telling a lot, and I just said, you know. Allah, I feel like I've strayed from you mm. for 19 years. I've strayed. And if you will give me the chance to make this up to you for the next 19 years, I will do whatever you want. And um, and that's what I strive to do. Yeah, that's what I, I really took that on. I really said, you know what, uh, whatever it is, if it's uh, praying, if it's doing good things, whatever it is, I will do it. If it's If it's staying away from this gender that I'm attracted to it, then I'll just stay away from it because it Mm -hmm. makes sense to me. Everything just clicked to me. And I have to, I have to put it out there that the, the reason why this clicked to me, it's because somebody sent me your video. It was a, it was a few months ago. Somebody sent me your video of of this talk that you did. I think it was the one at the conference in Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah. And somebody just sent just like, it was my, it was my stepbrother actually. Um, Mm -hmm. my, it was uh, my stepbrother from my 
Uh, my mom's my mom's been married four times. Alhamdulillah, she's amazing. She's great. I love her. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> it was uh, from her third marriage. Uh, uh-huh. Doesn't make her any any less of a person. She just of she, course she knows not. What no. she wants, you know? All the love to mom. <laughs> Sending her a big <laughs> hug right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, she just loves to love, and that's great. I take mm-hmm. after her. Absolutely. But um, <laughs> so yeah, the stepbrother from a previous marriage from her third husband. Mm-hmm. Um, he sent me this video and he's Muslim and he just, mm-hmm. he just texted me and he said, Hey, what are your thoughts on this? And mm-hmm. I heard it and I was like, I was kind of mind blown to be honest. I just said, I told him, you know, I, I probably listed out just way too many things to him. He didn't even respond, but, um, <laughs> I could basically, you know, I broke down everything that you were saying and I said, this makes sense. This makes sense. Especially when you were talking about how the Muslim community views us and, and, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you were saying, you know, basically that they criticize us and blah, blah. blah and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And I just, that your talk resonated with me and I went and I, um, shared it to a bunch of people too, including my dad and such. And for some reason it just clicked because I'd never heard from that perspective. I've heard from the progressive perspective. I either, I've always only heard two. I've only heard of Muslims, just Muslims without SSA that, you know, talk about that. We're not supposed to engage in these actions. And I'm like, well, that's great. You know, you don't, you're not attracted to the same sex. So easy for you to say, exactly. uh, yeah. And then I've heard from the progressive Muslims, right, that they say, oh, we're Muslim and we have SSA and we're able to act out on our desires. And that resonated with me back in the day because who doesn't want to do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I had never this was my very first time ever hearing a Muslim with SSA that said, no, I'm a Muslim with SSA. I'm exclusively attracted to the same sex and I don't even act on it. And I was like, who is this dude? Because uh, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that oh. I can't even comprehend. And um, yeah, I just, I've, there's only been one other person that I've heard this about, but it was a Christian. It wasn't a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And so I resonated in the sense like, oh, it's religious and whatever. But it's this guy named Michael Glatz. And mm-hmm. people need to look him up because it's crazy. Um, he was a huge gay rights advocate uh, for youth back in, I think it's the nineties. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, he formed these, these, uh, these groups for, for gay youth. I mean, he saved so many people from, from suicide and such. Um, but these gay youth gave him a place to be. He lived with his boyfriend for 10 years mm-hmm. and he completely left that lifestyle. And now he's a Christian pastor um, somewhere. And that was the only other person. It was, few years ago I saw his video and I remember thinking like you know I was in my progressive days so I was thinking oh he's repressing his sexuality oh you know he's obviously still in love with his his uh his ex-boyfriend and uh but yeah from the Muslim community had never heard about it until you and uh that's why I was like I need to reach out to this dude because this dude could probably help me a little bit <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And then you did, and you put me in touch with, you know, straight struggle, straight struggle, and all that. And then I'm like, oh dang, there's a lot of people out there mm-hmm. that are experiencing the same thing, you know. Yep. And it's sad because we don't hear about us, and so I can't, I can't say whether or not, like, if I had heard about this other group of people, if I had heard about 
them at 21 or 18 or whatever if I would have not gone on the path that I did because I don't think it would have been that easy for me. But I heard about you at the exact right time, at the exact right moment um, where everything clicked, you know. But I do wish that our community was bigger and more open Mm -hmm. that other people could hear about us. Mm. It's interesting because when I was listening to Sanan's story in one of your episodes and he was talking about when he was on the verge of about to to engage in a same-sex encounter, he actually logged on and he just typed in gay Muslims and the straight struggle popped up. Mm. And then he got in touch with the straight struggle with this community that has SSA, but does not engage on the actions. And for me, it was very different because when I was searching and looking, I typed in uh, LGBT Muslims and a website had popped up that was LGBTQIA plus Muslims or progressive Muslims. Mm. And so I always wonder, you know, what, what could have happened or what would have my life have been like if the first thing that had popped up was say something like the straight struggle, maybe my life could have turned out a lot differently just from one Google search. So that's why I think it's really important that our community is outspoken and that there are options for Muslims with SSA. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this is why we're trying to do this work. We're trying to educate people and raise awareness. And we realize that our community is, unfortunately, we suffer from a lot of shame and there's a lot of fear. And nowadays with the socio-political climate, you know, it's like politically incorrect for you to adopt this position that we're adopting. Like, okay, I'm a Muslim, I'm a devout Muslim, I'm trying to be so that person. And I have those attractions, I'm not acting upon them. Uh, Muslims paint you as someone who is going to hell anyway. And the other side, you know, the LGBT progressive side is like, oh, you're an internalized homophobe and you're not acting upon your desires and you're just going to lead a sad life. And we're like, no, we're following our own value system. We're trying to live a life true to Allah and our religion. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, this is our life. This is our choice. And we have, you know, we have to have our presence. We we are making legitimate life choices. Um, So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, and and the one I agree with you just with the the LGBTQIA plus community, that's what I refer to it as, but... um, that yeah, they're they're always saying that oh you're repressing it, repress, repressing it, blah blah, and you're gonna be so sad. But the thing is that I w- I was there, you know, mm-hmm. I was there for 13 years, and so I've experienced that sadness as well. And um, I can't say that you know right now like I don't get sad or anything like that. But that religious guilt is something that I don't want to play with ever again. If mm-hmm. I can avoid that for the rest of my life, I'll be happy. Um, and it's not like it's not going to be hard. It's going to be hard for sure. Every single day it's going to be hard. Of course. But, um, okay, so where I would like to be emotionally, mentally, spiritually and such is that um, I just, I really want to continue on this path, right? I don't, mm. I know that Allah can, uh, can veil your eyes at any time and can unveil your eyes at any time, right? And I think that he unveiled my eyes to um, this path and it was through your video and I can definitely say that if he didn't choose to unveil my eyes at that particular moment, when I would have watched your video, I could have just, you know, just ignored it basically and just continued on my way. And, uh, 
So I'm hoping that's what I pray for every night is when I pray for forgiveness and then I also for everything that I've ever done. And I also pray that he continues to keep my vi- um, keep my eyes unveiled so that I can continue on this path. I mean, and that and that I want to help somebody. I want to help somebody like you helped me, right? Because you, it's so funny because it's just people just think, oh, it's just a video on YouTube, but it was literally like like a life changing moment. I mean, you literally altered my life. Uh, completely. I remember 100%. when you emailed me, honestly, I was really crying. Like I was bawling reading your email. <laughs> I was really moved to tears. I'm like, okay, I might do it. At least I'm doing something right. Alhamdulillah, that Allah is, is using to help other people. I'm just so humbled and so like floored. I'm, I'm just, subhanAllah, like I'm at a loss for words. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's truly amazing when you think about it. And even my family, right? When I sent my family this video and then I started talking about like, oh, that I'm starting to pray again and that, oh, I'm fasting. And and they're like, who the heck are you? You know, I'm like what's going on? You know, and then I'm sending, I'm so sending your man. video and I'm like, look at this guy, Wahid, look at him, look at what he's talking about. Everything he says, I'm, I'm resonating with it. I hope to have some sort of impact like that on somebody else because what are we doing in this life? You know, if we're not helping other people, what are we really doing in this life? In this life, we should at least be number one. We should be developing ourselves. And then we should also be developing others and helping others. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, in my current job right now, at least I feel like, you know, I'm making a difference in the world and such. Um, but I just want to continue doing that. I want to, um, I want to really help people. And I, I think everybody sort of does, unless you're a psychopathic, right? But I, I think that's good. I think everybody sh- sh- should always keep feeling that, trying to trying to save the world, even if it's idealistic, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah, 100%. I agree with you. And if I were to ask you as a follow-up question, what is Amina grateful for in life? And what? how do you describe your own successes with everything that you've been through in life? Um, what are you proud of personally in any uh, in your studies, your career, your personal life, spirituality, everything that you've been through. How would you answer that question? So what am I grateful for? I mean, so so much, really. I mean, I'm one. I'm like I said before. I'm grateful that Allah had had showed showed me this path, and that I that I didn't leave the religion completely, because I think um, I think that that was that was definitely a real option for yeah. me. And I think actually the progressive Muslim community is the only reason why I stayed in the religion because, you know, they said that, hey, you're you're queer, but you can also be Muslim and you can be both. You don't have to leave one or the other. And that's very powerful. And it's the first time somebody had ever told me that. And um, so that kept me in the religion, um, maybe just not practicing, but at least I continued to have the foundation. Mm-hmm. So I'm thankful for that. I stayed in the religion and that I didn't stray from the religion completely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm grateful for obviously my family. I mean, my family has stuck by me. Like we've talked about my, my mom and my brother have really stuck by me the whole way. And then my dad is also, you know, he's communicating with me again. And it's really, like I said, it's because of you, because I sent him not like he wouldn't have communicated with me before, but I mean, not like this, not like this. Um, he would have, yeah, he would have just... It's all through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, subhanAllah. Like you prayed, you were very honest with Allah and 
you're very sincere with him and honestly subhanallah he just opened up things for you in ways you could have never imagined so it's all from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just so so beautiful yeah i'm just grateful i'm grateful for um for my family and then for for my for you know my dad coming back into my life and talking to me and um, working things out with me you know i feel like i can tell him things now so that's nice um and then i'm grateful for my job i'm I'm grateful for this community too that you you're kind of building right and that other people are joining um a place for for us to just talk about whatever you know it's not even let's not just always talk about ssa let's also just be human beings you know exactly. <laughs> and like exactly. talk about the mundane stuff you know? exactly and Absolutely. that's nice absolutely and i'm just one of those like i lots of i mean this community has been built by giants before and we're just part and parcel of them and mashallah i mean we're just contributing um and yeah there's a lot more work to do but alhamdulillah a lot of people are um as you said you know either coming back or just finding their paths and wanting to find that their own space in those communities and this is a this is something that we strive for alhamdulillah yeah, definitely. So as you were hinting at throughout the entire episode, you were saying that you were kind of part of the progressive, quote unquote, Muslim community for a while. Um, and they helped you at some point. Can you share with us uh, how you were part of that? And um you also said that the Muslim community in general is kind of more close-minded than the progressive community. And how do you compare them together? And how do you hope we learn uh, to grow as a Muslim community in general? Yeah, so the quote-unquote progressive Muslim community, I mean, I kind of refer that to as uh, just a Muslim community that is becoming more all-inclusive and specifically saying that you can be LGBTQIA plus and also still be Muslim and also engage on your desires. So um, your same sex desires. So that's what I, what I, I'm speaking about when I use that term progressive Muslim. And I, mm-hmm. I definitely feel like I was a part of it um, uh, when I was 18 and really kind of in my twenties, I got introduced to it when I was in college and I was really searching, I was really searching for a way to be Muslim, but then also still be able to engage in my desires. And that was the option. That was the way. Mm -hmm. And, um, because I couldn't, I couldn't get past the fact that I, for me, I knew this was a, I don't, for me personally, I believe it was something I was born with. And I believe that, uh, things, events in my life triggered something in me. And then I became like this and I developed SSA. So if certain things hadn't happened, mm-hmm. maybe I wouldn't be triggered and maybe I wouldn't have had SSA, but I do believe that something's built in my DNA that I have these, these, these same sex attractions. Now, I don't know if that's a way for everybody. I mean, I know that some people, it's just a lifestyle and they don't feel like they were born with it and that's cool. And some people feel like they were just only born with it and that it has nothing to do with the environment. But for me specifically, I believe it was both. So because I have that belief mm-hmm. that I was born with it, um, I believe that Allah made me this way. So if Allah made me this way, then why can't I be this way? Right. 
this isn't the same thing as mm-hmm. like, you know, a law telling me that I can't have pork. I haven't had pork since I was a kid. Right. Um, I pass up mm-hmm. bacon cheeseburgers all the time. It's not a problem. Uh, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you're, you're right. making me love a certain gender and then telling me at the same time that I can't be with that gender. It's just slightly different. <laughs> right. And, um, so I had a really hard time with that. And, um, so I was searching, I was really searching for the people that are doing the work and they are really trying to interpret the Quran in ways to allow for this lifestyle to happen. And one of the big ones was that basically for women, it doesn't necessarily say women can't be with women. And I'm like, Oh, well look at that. It says that, you know, it's talking about the men of Sodom, right? That the men were doing all these things. It never says anything about women, even though, you know, 99% 99% of the Quran is directed at men. And, you know, when it says men, it's talking mm-hmm. about both genders. But for me, that's my loophole. Basically, I can say, well, it doesn't specifically mm. talk about women. And um, mm. anything that's that's trying to bring people together, I think, is good. And I think that's the mission. I don't want to speak for the mission of the progressive Muslim community, but I don't want to speak on behalf of them. But I think that that's, that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, hey, you know what? Like this has caused a lot of drama and it's caused a lot of heartache in families and we need to bring people together and we need to figure out, you know, how to not have 18 year olds get turned away at their family's doors when they come out. Mm. You know, we need to figure out how to make this work and they're doing this work and they're figuring it out. And so that was very, very appealing to me because it, it gave me my, it gave me my place of saying, okay, great. Allah made me this way and that's okay. Um, you know, I didn't want to walk into a mosque and be criticized about how tight my jeans are or how tight my shirt is or, or whatever, you know, I wanted to walk into a mosque like, and feel like I was walking into a church basically and have people come up to me and no matter what I'm wearing or, or what I look like. And I think everybody wants that. And that's what that community is doing. And it's so powerful because mm-hmm. it's attractive. And I wish that we, like the general Muslim community, regardless of SSA or whatever, could de- could make something like that, you know, that everybody just felt welcome and that people didn't feel sharpshooted all the time, you know. Mm. I always feel like, I always feel like, like we don't, we don't do a good job of just chilling, you know, like as Muslims, we don't do a good job of that. It's always you know, if a Muslim's in the car and I'm, I'm riding with them and I turn on the radio, I have to think, you know, oh, does this person listen to music or is this person about to lecture me on, on why it's haram? Mm-hmm. If I turn, you know, if I, if I flip on the TV to a football game and I'm sitting with another Muslim, are they about to lecture me on, you know, oh, this is haram because the, the football is made out of pigskin or, you know, oh, dear or, God. <laughs> you know, it just, it just goes on because we don't do a good job about just chilling. Like, <laughs> and sometimes we just want to be human, you know, like, exactly. yep. it's just, we take it to the next level and it's not fun anymore. And if the religion, I don't know, the religion's not supposed to be all unicorns and rainbows, but like, man, let's at least make it a little bit fun. And exactly, uh, but like breathe people, like stop being so, so 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 uptight to the point of suffocation right yeah exactly and i and i think people forget that we're just human that we just we're muslims yes but we're also human and and i think that if we were supposed to get this if we were supposed to get the whole purpose of life and um and really get islam right in a day 
then Allah would put us here for a day. But Allah put us here mm-hmm. for many, many years, right? And he put us for mm-hmm. many, many years because he's going to constantly test us and such. And we're supposed to fail. And we're supposed to just enjoy life. I kind of, I kind of look at, as re- at religion as like as going to school, right? If, you, if you're in high school, if you're in college, you go to high school for four years. You go to college for four years. Um, but are you just studying that whole time? I mean, think back to when you were in high school or college or whatever, and were you just studying constantly 24-7? No, you were out with your friends, you were eating, you were drinking, you were doing whatever. Um, but did that take, did that mean that you were no longer a student? You know, no, you were still a student. You were still in college. You were still in school. All of that mm-hmm. just played a role into that degree you obtained. And that's kind of the whole, that's our whole life. Nothing we do is going to take us away from being Muslim. We're always going to be Muslim. But we have to go through all these other things. It's not just, if somebody told you in college, like, all right, you're going to be here for four years. You're going to study 24-7. You will not leave. You will not take your nose out of that book. Like, it's just not going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and I think it's all the, the other parts of it that makes it enjoyable and makes us stay in college, right? So it's the same thing about life. You know, I'm not saying, oh, like stray away from a law or anything like that. No, every single day we should be trying to do what's pleasing, but we just have to be human too, you know, and recognize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what, that's kind of what I would wish for, for our community as well. So just like you said, just breathe a little bit and realize this is all part of it because God made us perfect, right? With all of our imperfections, mm-hmm. we're perfect. And he made, mm-hmm. he made this life as many years as it is for a reason. If we were supposed to get it in a day, he would put us here for a day. If college was supposed mm-hmm. to be one day, then college would be one day. We would walk out of there. We would show up in the morning, take a test, leave in the evening and have a bachelor's degree. But it doesn't work like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's 100%. Kind of cool. Yeah. Absolutely. Beautifully said. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. You're just showering us with, with, with wisdoms today. <laughs> I'm really, really happy to hear that. Um, but honestly, like what you were saying really resonates with me because at, at, for a large part of my life personally, I was very critical of Islam because of the Muslim community, because of how harsh the Muslim community portrayed Islam and portrayed God. Like as an angry God, as a harsh God, or religion is all, all about halal, haram, do this, don't do that. Oh, you shouldn't be doing this. And everyone is just boxed and you have to walk that narrow path and you're going to fail ultimately. And it's just so <laughs> yeah. suffocating, right? Yeah. And in your case, you found refuge in the pro- progressive, quote unquote, Muslim community who were like, okay, well, you can be this, you can be that at the same time. So that kind of protected you from leaving Islam altogether because otherwise you would have been like, well, screw that. I'm not going to even think think twice about that right um so yeah i mean i feel like a lot of us in the audience um who are hearing this are like man this really makes a lot of sense um we really need to and of course like when you say chill or just relax it doesn't mean like be lax with religion but like Mm -hmm. breathe for crying out loud (laughs) like god created us of course like the prophet always says like your body has a right over you your mind has a right your family has a right over you everything has its own time um and and we need to take care of our bodies our minds our hearts our friends our family our 
our parents, our spouses, children, etc. Everything has its own time. So this is something that we struggle with, unfortunately, and this rhetoric and the discourse that's full of negativity just is, is too toxic sometimes, but I agree 100%. But now the question that follows up is that, you know, um, sometimes the progressive quote-unquote Muslim communities, they have sometimes um, pr- problematic positions when it comes to like the lgbt uh, community as we said you know they're like okay well you can live your lifestyle and say muslim but obviously like orthodox muslims or um you know um, people like us you know in this in this position we're trying to say to people well we have ssa we're not going to act upon it we have a place in islam we're following you know allah and his deen in this particular way of course you know um with with staying true to our values and all of that um and if that is uh so my question to you is, now that you, Amina, is now in a new place and um, having new uh, perspectives on life and trying to to have this new life for her, how do you think we can balance uh, the our own Islamic values, where we stand right now, versus the progressive, quote-unquote, Muslim communities whose um, you know values may be in direct contradiction with mainstream Islam? Um, and how do you think we can have that balance without letting go of our values and our beliefs and at the same time having this, you know, relaxed life that is okay with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Without shunning anyone and just being happy and and chill, quote unquote, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, I really think this one, we overcomplicate this. I really, I think that if we all just thought, um, it really goes back to kindergarten days. You know, I feel like everything we really learned in kindergarten, if we just did that now, you know, basically share snacks, uh, everybody likes to share and eat. Uh, and then the big one is mm-hmm. treating people like you wanted to be treated. Right. So treating the mm-hmm. progressive Muslims, like you want to be treated. If, if you don't mm-hmm. like somebody telling you what to do and what you're doing is wrong, then don't go around telling other people what they're doing is wrong, you know? Um, cause nobody likes that. And I, and I don't think it, I don't think it helps the situation. Um, I, I kind of, I kind of relate this to smoking and I'm not saying S to say is the same as smoking cigarettes, uh, definitely more complex than mm-hmm. that. But, um, you know, how many people do we know that, you know, have smoked cigarettes all their lives and, uh, how many people have quit smoking because some random guy told them like, oh, hey, did you know that smoking is bad for you and you should probably quit that? And they were just like, just dumbfounded, right? And they just said, oh my God, I had no idea. I've been smoking for 10 years. Nobody has ever told me that. Well, I'll just put it down mm-hmm. right now, you know? It doesn't It doesn't mm-hmm. really work like that. Like, um, mm-hmm. and typically, actually, if you ask people if, what that have quit smoking, you know, why did you quit smoking? They'll say, Oh, you know, sometimes it'll be like, Oh, I quit for my kid or whatever, but it wasn't for some random guy that just told them. And they will actually say they get more annoyed with people that just tell them that. Cause they're like, dude, I already know, you know, I know this, everybody knows what's right and wrong. Just let people get to the end of their journey when they get to the end of their journey. Right. Um, hmm. so I, I, I kind of look at SSA in that, in that similar way that, you know, you don't have to tell people that what they're doing is wrong. Don't compromise your values. Don't compromise your morals. I'm not just saying like, oh, go out there and just be all accepting of everything. Um, but sharpshooting just doesn't work. And I and I don't think that people are doing it out of maliciousness. I don't. I think that there's plenty of stories of 
of prophets and um, hadiths, right, that say, when you see something wrong, say something about it. So I get that. Mm -hmm. That's what people are doing. They want to do something good and they want to do something that's pleasing to Allah. Um, But the thing is, is it's, it just isn't working because because we also don't like being told that we don't like being told what we're doing is wrong. We don't like being told that we're repressing our sexuality. And is that going to change our views? It doesn't change our views. So why do we think that us telling them, you know, that their beliefs are wrong, that's going to change their views. It's not, it's actually just going to create a rift. And I think that there's enough hate against Muslims right now. There's enough hate against Muslims from society, from um, international everywhere. Right. And, we don't Mm. need to be creating a rift between Muslims and Muslims because Muslims don't need to be fighting against other Muslims. That's just stupid. We should be bond. Mm -hmm. We should should really be joining together, you know, because Mm -hmm. we, we all want the same thing. Muslims with SSA all want the same thing. We all want to be loved and understood by our communities, Mm -hmm. by our families, by our societies. And if we came together to try and make that happen, you know, I think we have a better chance instead of just fighting against each other. Mm -hmm. But I think people have a problem with this because they don't agree with it, right? Just like that side doesn't agree with us and our side doesn't agree with them. And I think it, it, it like kind of hurts your soul, you know, if you're seeing somebody do something that is not pleasing to you, just like you would want to be understood by them. I think we have to come to a level of understanding of each other. Um, but yeah, I don't want people to think that I'm saying, oh, just compromise your values and let it all no, go. You of know? course not. No, uh, not at all. People don't really, ch- what I've learned in relationships and just growing up and such, people don't change by another person telling them to. I think um, people change when they're inspired by another person. Like, um, you know, okay, so you know how we all have those friends, right? That Those just crazy exercise fanatics that, you know, they're like running marathons, triathlons and all sorts of stuff and just engaging in, you know, every single tough mutter and Spartan race and all that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but then the second that they're like, Hey, you should come with me. And if you're not some big exercise, you know, guy like they are dude or dude, mm-hmm. and you're, you're automatically going to say, uh, yeah, I'm good. You know, mm-hmm. cause, cause you automatically, somebody is basically telling you, even if subconsciously, even if it's unconscious, they're telling you, hey, look, this would be good for you. You should do this with me. You don't exercise. So that kind of makes you less than, you know, mm-hmm. like even if it's unconscious, that that's kind of how we take it. So we're like, yeah, no, we're good. Uh, I don't feel like it. But those same friends, if they're just, if they're just energized, they're just talking about what they're doing to you. They're just talking about talking about, you know, all these races that are done, that they're doing, they never invite you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just see, you're like, Oh man, look at this dude or this dude at whatever. He's so fit. She's so fit. Uh, she has all this energy, blah, blah, You get inspired. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're like, man, I kind of want to work out or, or man, maybe I should ask him for some tips or whatever it mm-hmm. is. Right. People are more likely to kind of become a part of your group just by being inspired by you, you don't ever have to invite them. Mm -hmm. And that's how I kind of feel about the, um, the community that the Muslims with SSA that don't engage in the actions. You could, you can tell the progressive Muslims to join your side, but they're automatically going to become defensive about it and say, no, we're good over here. Like we'll just keep living how we're living. Or you could just literally be telling them about your experience. Like, 
oh, you know, I was on your side before and now I'm not and I feel great and or whatever it is. And maybe somebody will get inspired and maybe they won't. But like, at least you didn't leave it in this weird sense where the other person just feels defensive and put off and unwelcome, Mm -hmm. you know, because they feel like what they're doing is wrong. And just like we wouldn't want to feel like that either. Um, And so I don't, I don't really go into any conversation thinking I'm going to change anybody's mind about anything. It could be the simplest of things. Um, I just literally go into conversations just wanting to tell my story about things. And if somebody's inspired, then somebody's inspired. And if somebody, you know, wants to follow something I'm doing because they see I'm jazzed up about it, then cool. And if not, that's fine too, you know? (laughs) I don't go in with that mindset. Exactly. So it all boils down to, you know, you have your own value systems and other people have their own value systems and you don't need to kind of shove things down other people's throats and don't accept that from other people. But at the end of the day, we can all share, we can all love each other. And as you said, you know, at the beginning, everyone wants to love and, and to find love and care and attention, affection. And so um, loving each other and doing things out of genuine love might really, really end up winning people's hearts, right? Yeah. And I remember... Um, people that I communicate with always telling me like if someone is really honest and sincere in their pursuit of the truth and truth with a capital T um, wherever they may be in life whatever stage they are in whatever they have been through Allah will guide them and subhanAllah like you have been through this yourself like you were going through like so many ups and downs and so many issues and at one point you were like Allah please guide me and I want to do this right and subhanAllah things have just opened up to you in in unimaginable ways alhamdulillah um so yeah would you like to add anything on that yeah I definitely agree I mean I think it's been a it's been kind of a a common story too in my family because my family are converts and when I was really asking, you know, my mm-hmm. dad about his conversion story and my my uncle and such, those are the only people that are Muslim in my family. All the extended family are so Catholic and all that. But, um, you know, my mom, my brother and my dad and my uncle, they're all Muslim. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of a similar story of, of they really asked for guidance and they didn't even know what religion. They just asked, uh, you know, they were just praying out to God and some, some, some time, some tragic time. And they just said, you know, God, if you're out there, please guide me to the religion that you want me to follow. And I will follow it. If you, you know, save whatever was happening at that, at that moment, kind of this prayer that you hear about, you know, mm-hmm. often, but it works, you know, and it worked for my family. Mm-hmm. And then it worked for me when I've been praying, um, especially now uh, when I was going through that divorce and everything, it did work, but yeah, it, it definitely wouldn't have worked if Allah didn't want me to see. And so I am super grateful of that. That's wonderful. And uh, so my last question for you today is, any last words that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I would want to say what I wish someone had told me when I was 5, when I was 6, when I was 12, when I was 16, when I was 21, when I was 25, when I was 31, when I was whatever age. I wish someone had just told me, um, I love you. You are loved. You are perfect. And you are perfect simply because you exist. You don't have to do anything. You can literally wake up and you can take a breath and you can lay in your bed all day and then you can go to sleep and you can repeat that every day. 
and uh, that doesn't make you any less perfect that uh, mm-hmm. that God created you perfect with all your imperfections. And I think that we get on this this trip that we basically have to be great people every day and that we have to save the world every day and all this stuff. And that's what will make me make us great. And, and I don't think it works like that. I think that all you have to do is you just have to exist, you know, <laughs> like just, you're just perfect just in that. And everything you do after that, that is pleasing to Allah. That's just, that's a bonus. But I don't think we get told that enough. I think we get told that, you know, we're bad and, you know, the football that we're throwing around is made out of pigskin and, and all the stuff. And it's like, man, we just really took that. We took it away. We, we're not told that we're perfect, that we don't, that we're good people, you know, being, I don't think anybody really wants to be bad, you know? And so I wish somebody had told me that and that they told me that, Mm -hmm. Hey, everything's going to be okay. You know, just one day at a time, everything's going to be okay. You don't have to have this all figured out today. Um, and I will never have this all figured out. You know, I will never, I think this is a lifelong journey, Mm -hmm. but we're all on, we're all on the journey together, you know? Absolutely. Beautiful. God bless you, Amina. You have been amazing. (laughs) I really, really loved this interview. (laughs) Jazakumullah khairan. This is so wonderful. Um, God bless you. I I just want to make a quick prayer to you before we end this episode. May Allah bless you immensely. May Allah keep you steadfast and may Allah fill you up with his love and his guidance and his support and and open up divine openings for you and keep you happy and strong and and help you reach all of these goals that you want to reach and open up beautiful horizons for you because you are wonderful and you are capable and you are extraordinary mashallah we're so so proud of you i'm pretty sure everyone agrees with me we are proud of you and uh, it's been it's been a huge gift to actually listen to you and to learn from you mashallah i've learned so much from this interview and i really hope everyone uh, has learned a lot and has enjoyed this and i just want to tell people that um if you would like to say, if you would like to give Amina your salams or any messages that you would like to relate to her, please do write to me and I will personally send them to her. Uh, you can email us on awaybeyondtherainbow at gmail.com. And as always, you can listen to all our episodes on awaybeyondtherainbow.busproud.com. Amina, thank you again for joining me today. This has been a pleasure and a huge honor to me. Thank you. Sure. You're welcome. <laughs> this we have come to the end of today's episode and this wraps up season two of the podcast we will be taking inshallah a three-week break and we will be back with season three on october 9th inshallah in the next season inshallah we will be covering two major themes the first one is the topic of support systems and then the second theme is the topic of marriage and intimacy we've got many interesting topics and discussions and interviews prepared for next season and i look forward to sharing them all with you inshallah once we start season three in three weeks inshallah until then stay safe and healthy and i look forward to talking to you very soon this has been Wahid Jensen in Away Beyond the Rainbow. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.